What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Anti-black attitudes, are they a threat to health equity in the U.S.? Yeah, so what we were really interested in, you mentioned the Affordable Care Act earlier, and that was what we were trying to unpack a little bit is about why white people are so resistant to the passing of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, this policy was obviously very controversial, you know, it barely passed through Congress, um, but the amount of times that Republicans have um, attempted to repeal this policy is really uh, notable. And so what we were trying to understand is what is it about the Affordable Care Act that is so uh, infuriating to white people uh, in the United States. And so what we measured was looking at anti-black attitudes um, and their relationship to um, kind of projecting the ACA or wanting the ACA to be repealed. And what we found um, is that uh, white people are most critical of the ACA um, when they hold kind of these negative stereotypes or more implicit attitudes uh, about Black people's work, work ethic and kind of other negative qualities. Um, and we actually did a kind of a similar study looking at um, other kind of race-based policies such as uh, affirmative action or other things that are like clearly racialized in the United States, um, discussions of them in the United States. And what we found is that white people really interpret the ACA in similar ways as they interpret affirmative action policies or any other kind of policy that's been framed as race-based. Um, and so we argue is that people kind of saw the ACA as, as kind of a handout in just the way that you were talking about earlier in terms of this kind of mythical American dream and this idea that there shouldn't be any kind of special favors afforded to anybody in the United States, um, particularly not uh, racial groups that are seen as, as having a number of kind of negative qualities. And so that's exactly what we found in the study is that we, we kind of summarized that, um, yeah, that people reject the APA because they see it as disproportionately helping black people and that white people feel that's unfair, even though white people have a lot to gain from the APA. I think we've seen this in other areas, too, including in COVID-19, that white people will vote against their own interests if it means protecting um, you know, their own kind of racial identity or to ensure that uh non-white people don't receive what they perceive to be kind of special favors from the government. Even if it means I'm compromising my own health, my family's health, that pales, and I'm using that deliberately, pales in comparison to helping the so-called outgroup the non-white people. That's how I'm processing it. That, that's the only way, again, that I can that it can make sense because I'm not I'm not protecting my group by keeping them uninsured. That's not protection. I'm, I could die and that some white people have <laughs> I would rather die than support Obamacare get my funeral arrangement like what <laughs> yeah yeah I hear you I hear what you're saying and I agree with that I, I think there's also some aspect of protecting your in group by ensuring that the out group stays um, you know have, stays in less power and that means keeping people sick and some people of your own in group are going to suffer as well if the you know, overall negative outcome is, is greater for the outgroup than, than people 
may support that, even though there's going to be there's going to be a hit taken in the end group as well. But I hear what you're saying, and I agree. <laughs> System of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Wednesday, September 13, 2023. So I have been told we will have an all day long party as we wrap up Sue Klebold's memoir tomorrow on the Catherine Massey Book Club. Cannot wait. What an experience, transformative experience it has been studying, researching the whole Columbine situation uh, 25 years on. But we will wrap all of that up tomorrow, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, The audio that we heard at the beginning of the broadcast, that was from December 2022. We had Dr. Berkeley Franz, white woman, uh, as a guest on the program. She is the endowed faculty fellow in population health science. And she was with us to discuss her fascinating research on white anxieties about their demographic numbers and even how that impacted their response to COVID-19, all that white defiance around masks and then Obamacare as well. That was right at the end, late December, 2022. Amazing. She has lots of amazing research and we tried to cover as much as we could on that broadcast thought that would be great reminder for our broadcast today also a great reminder how we got here so just a few weeks back uh, we had Dr. David Herzberg as a guest on the program white man one of three co-authors for the book White Out I'll give the uh, full title in case folks didn't the broadcast or all that good stuff the full title white out how racial capitalism changed the color of opioids in america very interesting text lots of direct information about white supremacy racism uh, and even important for that broadcast so that book white out has three authors we spoke with uh dr herzberg white man two of the authors of that text are white the lead author of that text is non-white. However, she is a non-white person with one white parent and one non-white parent. All of that is explained in detail in the text by all three authors and how that impacts their study of racism and drug policy in the U.S. So that's the text that we talked about with Dr. Herzberg. And even interestingly, we talked quite because all of the authors discussed some of their personal background in the text. Same type of situation with our guest for uh, today. And so we spoke with Dr. Herzberg and he talked about uh, being picked on as a white person growing up and even his parents uh, effort 
to become accepted as white. They were so-called Jewish uh, in the kind of middle or middle 20th century, 1900s, and it took a while, but they were accepted as white. He went to an Ivy League school, and there you go, co-authored this book, White Out, the whole reason that we spoke to him. Anyway, we talked about all of that and even picked out a number of points in the text where it seemed that he was conflating the treatment of poor white people with black people. And we pointed this out in detail, sentence by sentence, syllable by syllable, even backed him down uh, from this, just following evidence and logic first and foremost. But that was the discussion from there. And then specifically from that text, white out uh, we looked at some of the footnotes and encouraged folks to do that on a regular basis and they cited our guest for today's broadcast and even a couple times in the sub chapter racial capital and medication assisted treatment they write let's see make sure I get the full sentence this explosion in capitalized medications for opioid user disorder coincided with the heightened economic uncertainty insecurity, excuse me, of the white middle class in the wake of the 2008 economic crisis, a volatile service economy, and the exportation of manufacturing left few routes to success with white men and women unable to reproduce the middle class nuclear family structures of their parents and facing becoming the racial minority in the U.S. by 2030. Our guest writes, in the future of whiteness, white Americans are conscious of their shrinking numerical dominance and feel called to defend their economic and political privilege in new ways. I'll stop right there. I said, wow, that's fascinating. You should read that. We've talked about that and what a major contributing factor that is for the practice of white supremacy racism, certainly at the core of Dr. Frances Cress Welsing's theory of white genetic annihilation. Heard from her right in the intro segment after Dr. Berkeley France. I went to get that book, The Future of Whiteness. Wow. We will chat it up about what is there. I will say, man, oh man, as I read that book, I've told you all for a long time, I generally try to check the bibliography section. We have guests on the program. We've been here for 14 plus years at this point. So I try to see what guests have been that they cite reference in their work have been guests that have spoken with us over the years. Whew, I think this one may have set a record. So this is just, Hey, what have you done for your 14 years of broadcasting? Let's hear it. So, just going through the bib section, Noel Ignatiev was with us, 09, to discuss the history or how the Irish became white. And importantly, he was here on the day Michael Jackson was buried, simultaneous even. Charles W. Mills, The Racial Contract, also 2009. Uh, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, 2010, talked about her book, The History of White People, even Importantly, I cite all the time the footnote she has there about the homoeroticism that runs throughout white culture and even particularly them bragging about their attraction to young white boys right in the footnotes of the history 
of white people, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter. Uh, back to 2009, Ian Hani Lopez, White by Law, such an important book. Matthew Fry Jacobson, 09, like we knew what we were doing. Uh, whiteness of a different color, although he's written many books. That's the one we talked to talked about specifically. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn with us many times. We talked about many books, uh, race war specifically in my top 10. We talked about lots of his great scholarship. Uh, admitted racist Timothy Wise. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. We were just talking about Jonestown. Another one. He's been with us many, many times. Admitted racist Tim Wise. Uh, Catherine Fossil, we talked about Ann Braden, Subversive Southerner, 2014. Uh, Dr. Joe Feagan, Two-Faced Racism, cite that one all the time for the racist jokes, although he's also written many books. Thomas DeWolf, 2010, talked about his work, going back and tracing his family's history of slavery. Uh, Bruce Baum, 2012. Jesse Daniels, 2010. Marcus Redeker, The Slave Ship, 2016. Like, whoo! This is, I mean, there have been a few texts where I went through the bib section and said, dang, I think we talked to a bunch of these folks. But this one kind of took the record. Um, at minimum, we should not be a stranger uh, to the concepts that are presented in this book. should be able to talk about them with some intelligence, since we should be very familiar with lots of the folks who get cited. Joining us live to chat it up, our guest, in addition to writing The Future of Whiteness, uh, she's a professor of philosophy at Hunter College and the Graduate Center uh, City College of New York. Uh, she's past president of the American Philosophical Association. Her areas of work include epistemology, Latin American philosophy, feminism, and critical race theory. Talked about that before and even get another connection to South Carolina. Two programs in a row. Joining us live, our guest, Dr. Linda Martin Alcoff. Dr. Alcoff, you're with us? Yes, happy to be here with you. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Wednesday afternoon with us. Uh, for our listeners who may not have read uh, The Future of Whiteness or some of your other work, uh, if you'd like to kind of give a, a brief intro of who you are and the work that you do. Well, I am a philosopher, I confess, <laughs> but I uh, I am interested in working on and showing how philosophy can help illuminate some of the current social crises in our society. And this is, of course, probably the biggest one we've got. So what I try to do in the book is really um, unpack what whiteness is, because I think sometimes we talk past each other when we use the term. People use it in different ways and show how it's really central to so many of the current crises in our society to, to things like gun violence, to things like trying to get a public health care system that works to all of our electoral problems, um, even, I think, in some ways to climate change, it's, it's, um, it's connected in a way that doesn't always get talked about. So I really think, and, you know, and what I wanted to show is that oftentimes people on the left and people who are liberals, um, and mostly I'm talking about white people on the left and white liberals, 
really don't want to talk about whiteness. They want to say that, you know, it's a, it's an old concept that was invented by the elites to divide the working class. That's Noel Ignatius, you know, view. Um, and we really shouldn't be giving it any more attention because the more attention we give to the issue of whiteness, the more um, hysteria and reaction we will experience. And I, I think that's exactly the wrong way to go, which sounds like your show uh, <laughs> would, would, it, would agree with because we have to talk about it. We have to find a way to talk about it with each other across differences in order to develop a different way to, to be together in this country. Right. So I, I, I try to like, ex, you know, unpack the concept. And I mean, I, one of the arguments, I'll just give you one argument that I have for why we, why the category of whiteness still um, is relevant is um, because. Can you hang on for a second right there? One second. Uh, yeah, and even in yeah, fact, sure. I, I'm going to hop in and get this one now. Now you told us uh, you're a philosopher uh you're in the philosophy department of philosopher by trade, your profession. That's, you know, to say that in the book and what have you, um, for the, and you said we often talk past each other. One of the things I've found individuals classified as white. And even this happens in conversations on racism all the time, but especially individuals classified as white. They do not answer questions. Uh, they will use lots of words and not really answer the question. And in fact, I've concluded this is one of the ways that white people deliberately practice racism and withhold information from non-white people, especially when it's time to talk about racism. So for this conversation, it is very important if you could, to the best of your ability, Dr. Alcoff, if you can answer our question. Um, And even I'm pointing it out now because I just asked for a brief bio and you hop to tenets of whiteness. We are going to get to oh, that, but I mean, man, like having this set up where we're not hopping all over, because I knew that was going to happen. I knew that was going to happen. So this is very important to answer the question. You can give us the nuance and the detail, but whoa, we cannot be just all over the place and tangent and answer the question because individuals classified as white frequently, they do not answer questions and I've concluded that's deliberate racism. So is this a reasonable request Dr. Alkoff? Yes, of course. I misheard the question. I thought you were asking me about the book. I didn't hear that you were asking me about my own bio but I'm happy to answer that question. I give it in some detail in the book. I'm actually from Panama. Um, I have a brown father and a white mother so I'm a mixed person like so many of us are these days. And um, I came to the United States when I was a little girl and grew up in Florida. Uh, during uh, when I first came here, there was still Jim Crow segregation and the civil rights movement was going on around us. So I grew up um, experiencing that and seeing, you know, uh, how it um, changed the society and how people were fighting over these questions. I saw it up close and personal 
when I was young, and my sister and I were kind of uh, in between, right, in between the black-white divide. So um, there was a neither my sis, my older sister nor I nor any of my relatives on that side of the family would be white by the one drop rule, right? We um, are mixed, uh, including sub-Saharan African. Um, I did my DNA test, <laughs> but uh, but I think more than your DNA, what counts is how you look. And I think this new term that people have, white presenting, is actually a useful term for getting at, you know, the, what's, uh, how people operate in, in society. So I, I think that's part of my biography, too, is um, in some situations I can present as white and people don't see the telltale signs of my, of my Latinidad. But in other cases, uh, that's not the case. So does that answer the question? That helps get us into a good start, uh, Dr. Alcoff. Uh, and I'm glad that you started right there so that listeners will grasp why I said what I said at the very beginning of it. Uh, I guess question number one, do you have dual citizenship, Panama and U.S., or one or the other? No, although um, I have, um, you know, thought about pursuing that, especially in the last few years with the craziness going on. I just have U.S. citizenship. My mother did that because she believed, I think, correctly that if I had U.S. citizenship, I could move back and forth between the United States and Panama more easily than if I had Panamanian citizenship, in which case it would be harder to move back and forth. And she was right about that. So she um, she's a U.S. citizen, but I was born in the in Panama. But she went to Gorgas Hospital, which was in the Canal Zone, where she didn't live. My father didn't live. Um, we didn't live in the Canal Zone. But she went to that hospital so that in my birth certificate it could say born in the Canal Zone in Gorgas Hospital, and and um, that would help secure my U.S. citizenship. Hmm. Fascinating. Well thought out from a white mother. Um, okay, on official government forms and what have you, birth certificate and all that, what is your racial classification? Oh, you know, that's a good question. I'd need to look at my birth certificate. I don't know that it's uh, listed on my birth certificate because my birth certificate is from Panama. And interestingly, in other countries, they don't require you to identify by race in the birth certificate, like unlike this country. So I don't think it's on there. But I usually, you know, I've I usually put mixed, something like that. I check more than one, something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated situation because if you are mixed, on the one hand, we need to own up to the white privileges that we may have if we're white presenting. On the other hand, there is a tradition in Latin America of denying one's non-white forebears of lying about it, of denying it, and of really trying to sort of, you know, sweep it under the rug. And, uh, you know, I don't want to 
continue with that and participate with that. My grandmother was from North Africa. Her name was Ohenya Hassan. She could not pass, nor could uh, her sister or some of the other relatives. And so um, she was my grandmother. And I uh, feel funny about um, claiming a pure whiteness in a way that might indicate that I'm ashamed of her or, or that I'm participating in the practice in Latin America of saying, you know, um, uh, no, I don't have any non-white forebears. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, so I just want to present, uh, logic. I would never use the term pure white, uh, no such thing exists. Uh, you get at that uh, in the right. book, even though that sort of language is used all the time in the system of white supremacy racism. Uh, but beyond that, you use the term uh, white presenting. Uh, and that's a phrase uh, I do not use much like there's a big list, white adjacent, honorary white, probationary white. And I told you mm-hmm. all they will just keep stacking them and stacking them and stacking them. Got the giggles, too. That's another one. The same thing when we were talking about mulatto and all of that way back with Dr. Durant at the I think that was January of this year and I told you the most scientific term out of all of those so we had I think it was mulatto and hybrid and all that white adjacent white probationary we got the white presenting goofy I said the most scientific word amongst all those was goofy that would still be the case (laughs) because in a system of racism white supremacy at the end of the day do I think this person can be accepted as white do i think they're able to behave function as a white person i would encourage everyone to go look at a picture of dr alcoff very important especially me being someone who's very melanated like you said your grandmother no way (laughs) no way you can do whatever you want to you can get all the bleaching cream in the world it's not michael jackson (laughs) it's not gonna happen no way not gonna be accepted as white so go look at her picture please please folks listening in if you've never seen it before dr uh linda martin alcoff name is spelled out and everything so you don't get confused do you think it's logical for folks if they were to see you for the first time especially people who are for sure not white no way they can be accepted as white do you think it's logical for them to see you and say whoa i think she might be accepted as white i suspect that she could be a racist do you think that's logical Well, I think it depends on who's looking because our perception of other people's racial and ethnic identities varies depending on where we grew up and what cues we learned as a child uh, about how to categorize and identify people. And just as you say, it's all pretty goofy and and atrocious, um, but there's variation. So in, in uh, many parts of Latin America, there are ways to identify people that are different than the ones used by most people in the United States. And that's also true in other continents. So I, I wouldn't say that, I, I don't think I can answer the question with a single answer because it depends on who's looking. 
a black person, someone who's classified as black in the U.S., since we're talking this part of the world, if they see you and they say, wow, I think Dr. Alcoff could be a white person, I suspect that she could be racist. A black person born in South Carolina, even make it more familiar. Do you think that that's logical? Well, sure, sure. But black people also vary. There's black people in um many black people in Panama and in Latin America, and they have different perceptual systems. But, you know, in terms of, like, um, the way racism works in the United States, I think um, there is, uh, you know, there's massive white privilege that I can, I can get in many kinds of public venues. Certainly, that is absolutely the case. Uh, for individuals listening to our program who are classified as not white, so when I put it in the context of a black person looking at her photograph, logical to think, hey, I think she could be a white person. I suspect she could be racist. She said, sure. Uh, when I hear individuals classified as white speak, and we spoke to hundreds of them, some of them I mentioned, Timothy Wise, that's one <laughs> admitted racist, don't drink the Kool-Aid. They will talk incessantly about ways that they access so-called white privilege. That's another term that I never use. They do not speak about ways that they practice racism, white supremacy. You as someone who can access so-called white privilege, are there times that you have practiced racism, white supremacy, mistreating individuals who are not white? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, I've, uh, but, you know, I don't think we're completely transparent to ourselves. I don't think anybody is completely transparent to ourselves. So I, I, um, I think it's really important, um, especially for white or white presenting or whatever term, you know, we use to be humble about the possibility of continuing to learn more about racism and how racism works in our society until the day we die. <laughs> That's my view. So I think, you know, I can assess my life and my practices at this point in time, but I am uh, open, and uh, I think one of the things we have to do is remain open to learning more deeply and more completely about how uh, racism works in our lives. Got it. I would say with, well, I'll just ask this way, given what we've said then, you said it's logical for me as we're talking, given... <laughs> white presenting quote unquote I don't use that term I think that's confusing I think a better term suspected racist this could just be that I'm talking to someone who is able to function as white and does so and practices racism white supremacy that could be the case so as opposed to white presenting I think suspected racist is the more logical term that's the way I'm going to think during the broadcast given the tone and even the conversation that we're having right now, because there's so much chuckling, white supremacy racism is not funny. And this conversation is not funny. Uh, that, that, And that's too, when we talk to white people, there's a lot of chuckling at, I haven't really, but you, 
that's even in the book. I was going to point that out. The chuckling continues in the text. Anyway, so you understand the logic of why that would be the case for me, someone classified as black, born in the U.S., looking at you, uh, might think, hey, this could just be that I'm talking to someone who's classified as white. You already agree to the logic of why that sound? Yes? Sure. Gotcha. All righty. Uh, for this program, we always start with definition. It was convoluted because most of the time we do not talk to people where there's this much racial ambiguity. Most of the time, are you classified as David Herzberg? Are you a white man? Yep. <laughs> we moved forward and got to other things in the book. Like this took a lot more time with the, you know, uh, but that's understandable. Cowbell. Got it. Uh, we normally start with the definition for racism. So important. You talk about that in your book. And the throwing term, we don't do that. I make sure that people get our definition of racism at the very beginning so we know if they think it's accurate, logical. I use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. Same definition for both. That definition is a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I do think such a system exists, but I think that that system coexists with some other systems. So I think I like to use the term, I I think there's more than one definition of racism. There's um, white racism against non-white people. And I think we're trying to move toward a more structural understanding of how that happens um, rather than, you know, reducing it to individual psychological, conscious, intentional disposition, which, of course, is quite common. But I think the structural uh, form of global white supremacy is more important to bring into focus in which uh, it's not about intent. It's not about conscious. It's about effects and, and it's systemic. But I think there's, you know, there's, there's other ways to... Um, define racism as a kind of uh, essentializing of other people based on their perceived race or their imagined ethnic or ethno-racial category. So I think there's, um, you know, it's, I think it's legitimate to talk about specific forms of, for example, anti-Asian racism that everybody who's not Asian can uh, promulgate or anti-black racism that everybody who's not black can promulgate and other forms of racism. So I I think um, there's, and I think we can talk about individual racism, and I think it's important to do, but I think we also need to talk about institutional racism and structural racism. So I'm I'm happy with a a kind of collection of racisms that exist in our society and in the world. Um, And we can, you know, uh, we don't need to reduce that collection to one definition, I think. 
I think it's more useful actually to see how slippery it is and how wide ranging it is and how we might, you know, think we've overcome one form and another form pops up. So um, that's, um, I think it's, it's useful to have more than one, one type in mind. For non-white people, victims of white supremacy, uh, that is the sort of response I expect from someone who is classified in white. And even more specifically, that's what I expect from a white person who practices racism. Now, why is that specifically with that response? They will move to we got anti-Asian racism. We got anti-black racism. All of that removes what was the first thing I said? White supremacy racism. The focus needs to be on the people who are causing all of this. And those are the people classified as white. We could be talking to one of them right now. The other aspect of that, the structure that is almost every single person that we speak to classified as white that's what they do and that's exactly why my definition is not that the structure the system is could be you but it is for sure the people classified as white they are the system they are the ones who make the laws they enforce the laws they update and refine the laws they are the ones who make all of this possible individuals classified as white they exactly the term she used before that they love timothy wise white privilege i've said for more than a decade that is a very passive way of explaining exactly what she just said but in a much more euphemized way pop up meaning this problem endures it continues it gets refined you think you've made some progress and nope why is that individuals classified as white the d word i use they are dedicated now you start to get a more evidenced and logic-based understanding of why racism white supremacy continues to pop up all over the world and in every single area of people activity is what i just said logical dr alcoff Well, I don't quite understand uh, the point. I mean, I think that there's this is the largest and uh, most nefarious and harmful system, but I think that there are multiple. This is a hang on moment because I did ask a question. This is what I mean about making sure we get a question answered. That's one of the ways people classified as white practice racism. So, is what I just said logical? I'm trying to answer it. I'm trying to answer your question um, because it, the, when you say is is the answer that you gave logical, that assumes that you and I agree on what is logical, right? So I'm trying to explain that I think um, I agree with I think most of what you said, but I I just think that there's it's important to talk about multiple forms of racism that can operate in different ways. Um, and, and in fact, I think it's important to talk about how people of color can um, pr- 
perpetrate racism against other people of color. And I don't think this is a dodge. Um, I think it's a, a sociological and historical fact that we have to come to grips with. So I think overcoming racism and white supremacy is going to be a complicated project and uh, rather than one that has a single sort of target that we can focus on and ignore all the other complicating factors. Much obliged context of white supremacy. Dr. Woo, man, making me work more than I wanted to. Dr. Linda Martin Alcoff, thank you for your answer. Listeners, make sure you go look at her picture. I normally don't do this, right? Make sure you look at her picture. Yeah, they have the search engines. I was going to say the G word, but they got the uh, antitrust suit. So maybe I won't say that. Just use a search engine and do a look-see for her pick. And folks that dial in with a question or what have you, let us know. If you just saw her, you didn't get any information. You didn't hear any of our dialogue. If you just saw her, what have you, like, oh, this is a non-white person, white person. What would you think? And then maybe you can adjust, you know, after you've heard the conversation, like, oh, okay, yeah, I think she's definitely not a white person. Let us know when you dial in with your question and such. Anywho, um, we jumped ahead a little bit. Uh, getting back to, you already explained, so you have one white parent, white mom, one non-white parent, so-called Panamanian, uh, actually born in Panama, uh, but U.S. citizenship. You talk in detail in the text about uh, the future of whiteness. You talk in detail about your skin complexion, uh, I guess, melanin percentage in comparison to your sister. And it seems that your sister is substantially darker uh, than you are phenotypically. And your white family members in South Carolina, they noticed this immediately and it manifested in how they treated the two of you. I guess for people that can't see you, maybe we got some folks who are lost. Before you get into that, can you kind of tell them, like, are you, would you say that you are lighter than President Obama, darker than President Obama in terms of skin complexion, just for folks to get an idea? Lighter. Lighter, lighter okay. definitely. Okay. And your sister, she, she would be darker than Obama, same complexion? What do you think? Well, um, I don't know, probably similar, similar to him. Um, this is just my older sister. I have, I have other sisters and brothers, but my older sister that I grew up with, yeah, she was, she was definitely, um, treated differently. Her hair was darker. Her eyes were dark. I mean, there's, you know, this, it's the skin color. Also, she came older than I was when we came to the United States. And she spoke only Spanish, and I was younger and could learn English faster. So there was a variety of elements that I think, and you know, contributed to her being seen as, as um, an you know, an outsider in the family, not really one of the family. And your what what uh, time period is this? If we can ask, just to, for context. Late 50s. Late 50s. Okay. In South Carolina. Yee. Um, no, it was in Florida, actually. In Florida. Thank Florida. you. Florida. Thank Florida. you. Florida, 19. Oh, we talked about <laughs> going to Florida, 1950s, uh, right down the road. Uh, and you say that your white grandparents 
they would make racist comments about black people on television in you all's presence? Explosively racist, I think was the way it was phrased. Is that accurate? Yes, my my grandfather did. Not my grandmother that I remember, but my grandfather did, yes. Do you remember, like, what specifically, what, what he would say? He, he would just, I mean, you know, in those days it was rare to see um, a non-white person of, of any sort on television. And um, he would just say something about, look how black that person is, and laugh, that sort of thing. Took the words. I just, you know, yeah, I'm I remember st- it <laughs> very clearly, unfortunately. But. You literally took the words right out of my mouth because when I was processing this, like 1950s, like it couldn't, they didn't even have that many television state channels at that time. Like it couldn't have been that many black people, especially in Florida, like it could not have been that many black people on TV. Uh, so. I don't even know how many opportunities you could have to, you know, <laughs> be grouse about this. Like, damn, how the, I don't know. Did, was this a prominent thing? Like, do you remember this happening? I don't know, weekly, monthly. No, I, I, and in fact, I think it happened in the '60s, not in the '50s. I mean, I came to the United States in the late '50s, but um, I spent the decade of the '60s in Florida still, and in and out of my grandparents' house. We lived with them for a while. And so I think it was more in probably the mid-60s when he would have said this, and I only remember it once or twice happening, but it struck me, um, you know, uh, with just, it just sort of struck me with his response to it. Fascinating. Did he tell racist jokes as well or he just made these comments about black people on TV I don't remember any racist jokes um, or anything like that but I I know that he was um, I know that he had racism anti-black racism in particular and I, I think I know that um, my grandparents were not real happy when my mother um, told them that she was marrying my father, <laughs> who was, you know, not not all white um, and uh, visibly not all white. Um, they liked him because he was educated. He had a graduate degree, and they were, um, you know, they were semi-literate, um, as I talk about in the book, um, sharecroppers, poor white folks, and they respected his education and his position. So I think it was, it was an interesting mix. My, my mother brought her white skin to the mix, and he brought some uh, a higher class and education than, than she brought to the mix. And, uh, and I think my grandparents were appreciative of those elements of him but but really um my grandfather in particular i know did not really think that the relationship would work or that it would um uh or that it was you know was the right thing to do i guess but of course i was a child during all of this and children only hear a little bit of 
what goes on. We don't know the whole thing that's being said. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, with, with regards to your, uh, parents, you talked about how your, uh, dad, non-white dad, Panamanian, uh, he brought uh, a little bit more class quote unquote to the partnership and your white mother brought her white skin. Uh, and that's one that I point at consistently. And even for some of the very same reasons that you interrogate in the text, we're not really talking about biology and even we're not even talking about white skin. We're talking about being accepted, classified as white. And that's really more connected to power. That's what she brought to the relationship, whatever, you know, however, however much you have in that system, that's what it is. It's not your quote unquote white skin. It's being classified as white in the system of racism, white supremacy, and all the goodies that you get as a result of mistreating non-white people in that system. That's the type of thing that I think it's very important to state accurately. Um, you on 34 and talking about your parents. Well, yeah, uh, talk more. Talking about your grandparents, sorry, grandparents, white family members. Uh, this is on page 34, introduction, the unbearable whiteness of being. Uh, you're talking about your grandparents. You say the status distinction wasn't much, com- wasn't much compensation. Besides her poor housing, all my mother's clothes were sewn from feed sacks and cast off materials. And the only meat her family ate was the fish and game they could catch, including possum, bear, and sea turtles. Oh my goodness. I'm skipping the paragraph right there. Uh, my parents met in college after my mother reached Florida State University by something of a miracle, one element of which was a scholarship from the Daughters of the Confederacy. She recalls the day her father drove her up to Tallahassee, helping her get settled. I'll leave out the, uh, what shall I say, humorous zipper uh, anecdote. Mm-hmm. Um, but you go into detail talking about how your white family members, you were not the rich folks uh, of the South uh, with, you know, centuries of plantation wealth built up. That is not the case. Uh, You talk about your white family members working with black people, eating hogs and such uh, with black people. And then going into all of this about the, the miracle of your mom getting into Florida, I guess one, do you think, uh, during this same time period that you think some of the black people that your white family members worked with, do you think they could have got that same scholarship to FSU go Seminoles? No, of course not. And what I, what I say in the book and what I've, I've said in, and you know, I've, a lot of things that I've written is the reason why I talk about how poor um, my white family is, is precisely to show that, even the poorest of the poor white families had an advantage. One of the things I say in the book is that um, my white family, the poor side of the white family and my mother's side, they could they could get a gun and go into the woods and shoot a bear, right? They could vote. They could, um, you know, they had better employment opportunities. So at the lowest rung of the white uh, labor force, um, there were still some advantages over black people. Now, that's not to say that there's some black people, of course, that even at the time who had more money than um, my white family did, but those advantages are really significant. Voting is very significant. 
being able to go and shoot game to feed the family is very significant. Employment opportunities obviously are very significant. So I think um, this is an argument that I make against um, some some of the theorists in race studies, and I think Ignatiev is one of them, who develop a kind of class reductionism in which class can uh, put, can, you know, if you share the same class, you can set racial differences aside. I don't think that's true. And I saw it growing up in the South and I saw it growing up with a white poor family. It's actually, you need both of those terms that I just used to understand my mother's family. You need to understand that they were poor. You also need to understand that they were white in order to understand their lives and their, um, you know, the possibilities that they had in their lives. So you need both. So that's why I talk about um, my uh, my mother's family. Dr. Linda Martin Alcoff, The Future of Whiteness. Uh, you also write about your white fam- white family members. You say uh, there are also white Klansmen and Panamanian Fidelistas. My white family is typical of Southern whites who have lived amidst the social changes of the last half century affected by the social cataclysms of civil rights. And they have responded to these changes in a variety of ways, ranging from To Kill a Mockingbird, second time mentioned in a week, to Rambo. Uh... Help help me help me break that down. What does that mean? They've responded in ranges from to kill a mockingbird uh, to yeah. What does this mean? Well, I was trying to use it metaphorically. I think to kill a mockingbird is a racist book. Um, I suspect you might agree with that. It's um, you know I don't know if if anybody has read her other book. Um, her earlier book that that they wouldn't publish but that has since come out, um, that's an excellent book. And I'm forgetting the name of it right now. But um, Go Set a that's Watchman. A book. Yes, Go Set a Watchman. I really recommend people read that. If you want to hear, because she's a wonderful writer, if you want to hear the language of Southern white races and the way that they talk amongst themselves, you'll you'll really get that and go set a watchman very clearly. To Kill a Mockingbird is, is uh, but it's it's liberal racism as opposed to clan violent racism. I mean, you know, we could we could uh, argue over exactly how to parse those terms, but I think there's there's distinctions. There's people who believe that they are promoting equality between you know, diverse groups in our society, but are not willing to make the social change necessary for that. And that's the sort of To Kill a Mockingbird sort of view. And then Rambo is, of course, all together. (laughs) I meant it as a kind of metaphor of violent, genocidal, you know, kinds of practices that some people pursue unapologetically and unreservedly. And so my family, like I think a lot of families actually has political very variation within it that runs, um, you know, from 
that includes both of those kinds. Well, that is stunning. That is not what I thought that meant. Uh, that I'm glad I asked. Wow, I. Wow, I even have to take it back. Uh, that is the first time To Kill a Mockingbird gets mentioned regularly uh, in discussions of racism. Harper Lee, popular book, popular film. Gregory Peck, Superman. Um, we've n- I've never talked to anyone who said that that book. To Kill a Mockingbird is racist. Never. Particularly a white person. Never. Um, that, that's wow. I mean, just that's such a stunning person because I do think the book is racist. We just we literally just had Jennifer Pierce, white woman. She was a guest on the program. Feminist. Same as you. She describes herself as a feminist. She wrote about affirmative action. She talked about To Kill a Mockingbird. She does not think it's a racist book. I said, do you think Atticus Finch is racist? She said, of course not. He's awesome. He tries to get Tom Robbins off and all the rest. And I said, what about Calpurnia? I said, oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about her. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm a toxic, patriarchal, sexist black male. I thought about Calpurnia. You're a feminist? And you didn't think about Calpurnia? I said, oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I think, you know, there's so many elements of that book that are racist. I mean, Atticus Finch is the white savior uh, trope, which is really uh, old and and still with us, unfortunately. And I think the the other thing is, um, I mean, the book does do some some interesting things. I think it, uh, it, it shows in the jury that, um, uh, Tom Robinson's main crime is in feeling sorry for the white woman. And that's an interesting moment. That's the, I think, the most, um, you know, interesting moment in terms of trying to show the racism in the society. But overall, what the book does is it, um, it shows the whole thing from the white point of view. And it makes Atticus Finch out to be a savior. And I think one of the most damning things is that the reason why the, some of the jury and the audience is led to believe um, Tom Robinson's story is not because Tom Robinson explains the story of what hap- actually happened in that encounter, but because he is physically incapable of throwing with his uh, right arm. Remember that in the in the movie? Um, yes, ma'am. He had claimed that he hit her, you know, on one side of the face, and to do that, he would have had to use the arm that was he was actually incapable of using. So we don't, we you know, the the audience and the readers of the book are not led to see that you know, that we should rethink how credibility is distributed across racial groups. We're, the, you know, we're led, the audience is led to believe Tom Robinson because there's, no, there's nothing else that you can believe given his disability in one arm. And, you know, I, so I think that's a very weak um 
anti-racist move, if it's even anti-racist. In some ways it's not, because it's maintaining the system that we decide who to believe, you know, in a continuing in a racist way. Context of white supremacy. Um, I, not that I want to bog down in this old book, but I, my, I do think that's interesting. I think one of the things I noted in terms of the racism, the movie doesn't really sympathize or doesn't the villain of all of this. I forget the white male who goes to attack, uh, who actually does beat down uh, the white woman and blames it on Tom Robinson and then goes and attacks Atticus Finch's, Atticus Finch's children. That's what makes him a villain. It's not that he lies and does mm-hmm. all of this to get time. It's that he, and it's repeated. That's one that I pick out as well. What I said about Dr. Nell Irvin Painter and white culture, the homoeroticism and sexualizing of children. That's into kill a mockingbird too, because it's white children are repeatedly attacked in that book by racist white men. It's, they go to get Tom Robinson to lynch him and it's white children and they're going to beat him down. Then even they stop and it happens again where he keeps going and threatening white children. And then finally at the end of it, that's really what sets him up. as the villain. It's like, Oh yeah. And the nigger died. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. But he's attacked these children. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe it. like that's it's very weird. And even that, I think even worse, it makes Atticus Finch, not a racist, which is clearly not the case. If you just read the next book, go set a watchman where he is furious that Negro children have. How could you have a white man in Alabama in the 1930s? This is 20 years before the bus boycott Rosa Parks. How could you possibly have a white man in Alabama who has a black maid, no less, who is not racist? Come on. Anyway, Atticus Finch, and that's the greatest hero in movies, Hollywood of all time, Atticus Finch. Anywho, uh, I gotta get this in just because uh, African American culture, this was brought up on our most recent broadcast. You mentioned it specifically in the text. Dr. Alcoff, what do you think is African American culture? What do I think? Um, well, I'm not an expert in this, um, although I am doing some work now on the issue of cultural racism, which brings me into topics of culture, how we define culture, how we understand culture. Um, I mean, African-American culture, I guess, is all of the cultural productions that have been produced in the particular experience of the of the of the you know of slavery and the and the diaspora since um, the beginning of the conquest because it really started in the very beginning of the conquest of the Americas in 1492. So for the last 500 years there have been um, black people forcibly, um, you know, kidnapped, enslaved, um, conscripted, and having to lose um, some elements of their previous culture and create new culture. So it's all of that huge amalgam of 
ways of living and ways of producing um, music and writing and so forth that have been produced in this out of this particular experience. I appreciate the humility. Uh, Dr. Alkoff, she said she's not an expert in this area, but that is the exact same response that I gave uh, three days ago now on the broadcast about black culture. I just, I think I said it a bit more succinctly. I just said black culture is a response to white supremacy racism in my view a pretty pitiful one for the most part but that would pretty much be what it is she didn't have the pitiful part that was me but for the most part we're pretty close um our previous guest had a different definition but that's hey at least we got his definition we got my definition and folks can you know evaluate see what makes sense um we went a little out of order for many reasons. The book that we've been even reading from and talking around the future of whiteness, um, what or was there a problem that you were trying to solve with the future of whiteness, Dr. Alkoff? Yes. One of the problems I was trying to solve is um, the fact that people want to avoid the term whiteness. And at least when I was when I wrote the book, it came out in 2015. I think this was more common than it is today, which is to try to say, um, "I'm not white. Whiteness is just a mirage. It's a illegitimate term that was produced um, in order to divide the working class or produced by racists, and it has no." connection to reality, so we should stop using the term whiteness. And that's why I call it the future of whiteness, because some people think there is no future of whiteness. We can eliminate the term, eliminate the concept, and eliminate the problem. And uh, so much of the book um, is my argument against that kind of view and arguing that we need to talk about whiteness more than we do and explore it and analyze it and uh, from many different dimensions. And that's the only way to get to a different, a different future. Did you have an intended audience in mind for this book? Like, was this for your students or others in the academy? Was this for everybody, general public? I, I was trying to write in a way that would be a uh, larger you know, more accessible, less verbiose, you know, um, and less academic. But um, my husband read the book, and he's not an academic. He doesn't have degrees. Um, and he, he explained to me that it actually was more academic than I had realized. Because there's terminology I use sometimes. I don't even realize, you know, that it's terminology that we use um, in, in university and college settings, but that doesn't get used outside of that. But I, I really hoped to reach a broader audience, but I'll tell you who my, my audience really was, who I was in, wanting to reach, and that is the left, the white dominant left. That's who I was really trying to reach. Okay, I have to put a pin in that. White, wow, that's who you really 
wanted to reach about the future of whiteness and are we going to use this term identify are we going to just stop using this classification whiteness in general that's okay I'll keep that in mind put a pen there you you said your husband read the book or I guess you talk about that a little bit in the book when y'all go to the sporting contests and all that and you don't like it too much um, he read the book and he thought it was a bit academic with some of the jargon and such uh, is your husband classified as white or not white He's Jewish, um, so, uh, you know, um, he certainly um, gets white privilege. I know you don't like the term, but he, he certainly gets that a lot. But he also gets anti-Semitism pretty regularly. So I, I think it's, it's Jews are, um, in my view, on the borderlines. Sometimes they are, you know, completely fully included within the, the grouping of whites. And at other times, historically, they have been pushed outside uh, the Nazis are an obvious example. And But it goes back and forth in Jewish history. It's kind of interesting. There's a, it's not like they get it gets better and better and better. They get better and then they get pushed out. They get better and then they get pushed out. So it's kind of a, they're a border category on, of whiteness. Uh, once again, for non-white people who are listening, Jewish is not a racial classification, uh, which I'm sure our guest knows. Uh, that's how you can have Sue Klebold say she is Jewish. Sammy Davis Jr. say that he is Jewish. Uh, the Your husband, uh, was he born in the U.S.? Yes, he was. So this person on his birth certificate, what's his racial classification? Because Jewish is not there. I don't, I, again, I don't remember what's on his birth certificate, actually. Well, I think, you know, Jewishness is um, is not a religion in the way that many Protestants and Catholics, Christians in general, think about religion as a matter of choice. Oh, well, hang on a second. Hang is, on a second, because I didn't, I didn't ask okay. about an explanation for, <laughs> I just asked what is racial classification, and I didn't even get that. Much obliged. Um you on 78, uh, and this is similar to what we heard. And I even have to pause for a second because this book was published in 2015. She said to target the white left, white members of the left. Uh, but this book was published in September 2015, two months after the Charleston, South Carolina attack. Dylan Roof uh, kills nine people, Mother Emanuel, AME, and literally weeks from the time that Donald Trump announces his candidacy for president the 2016 campaign which of course he did win e for timing of when all of, and in fact even Tallahassee Coates book Between the World and Me came out the same month that this book came out and it was rushed because of the shooting at the Charleston church that June 2015 just for context of what was happening specifically when all of this came out uh you on page 78 now this is why i remind folks when we spoke with david herzberg who is a white man who said that he also so-called jewish but that's what i mean where it didn't take all that time are you classified as white yep and then he also said that he was so-called jewish uh you write on page 70 an analytic of whiteness because of the mediations of identity 
some white people have experienced discrimination and stereotyping that are analogous to the racism experienced by non-whites, while other white identities have had little to no such experiences. When you say that there's some white people who've experienced discrimination similar to the racism experienced by non-whites, uh, what are you talking about specifically and who? Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say identical, right? I would say similar. Um, and I think my husband, probably to his credit, would give the same answer that your previous uh, uh, guest Hertzberg said. He just he would just say he's he's white, but um, you know I'm a philosopher and we complicate things. And I think um, you know there's it's it's a uh, it's a complicated story of how to understand Jewishness in relationship to whiteness. Um, but I think what I wanted what I think is is um, useful to that we can draw on and trying to make some changes and I think that many of us experienced this in our interactions is that there are some people who are classified as white at least today who have experienced ethnic essentialism and based on their lineage their you know identity it's a lot of times southern europeans experience this also, of course, North Africans are officially classified as white by the U.S. Census, but they are not always treated as white, even in Brooklyn, right? So Arabs, Muslims uh, from, from North Africa in particular um, have a visibility that demarcates them. And so I think this is not as, as brutalizing um, it's not the same as anti-black racism, but I think there's some similarities in that it's just your identity. It's just your lineage. It's just your family. And people think they know everything about you. People think they know everything they need to know about you. And they don't need to hear you talk. They don't need to ask you questions. They already know everything they need to know about you. And that, we can build on that, right? We can build on that understanding, even if it's partial, to a greater understanding of the way racism works. We heard something similar from uh, Dr. David Herzberg, who was saying that about, I told you, he, he said he was so-called uh, Jewish, and he talked about his mm -hmm. uh, parents as well. And he talked about how, I told you, this was like mid-1900s, uh, and so they, at earlier points, were not accepted as white there was some pushback and such uh, but eventually they were that I'm using the term you have in the book that is not analogous to black people non-white people system of white supremacy racism if I could change my name or do some moving around that sort of thing and eventually boop, 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 move on through be like your husband that is not, we wouldn't even be having this conversation I wouldn't have read your book I wouldn't be concerned about any of this and that I just find that staggering that you have some of the similar thought or some of the similar comments in your book that suggest that there are some similarities perhaps between certain groups of white people poor white people or what have you when that is not the case at all I just that is so fascinating it was the same type of thing in Dr. Herzberg's book and 
they referenced you. That's how I found out about the future of whiteness to begin with. Um, you, this is right beneath what I just read, uh, the portion about certain, certain white people and their analogous mistreatment. Uh, so this is, I'm scrolling to 70, do, do, do. You're talking, or I already mentioned the sports. She said her uh, husband, who she said he would self identify as white, although she says, you know, she includes that he's so called Jewish and all the rest of it. You talk about how you all would go to sporting events and that sort of thing. He's into it, blah, blah, blah. You're not, blah, blah, blah. You're looking at other things. You continue on. You're right. Whites have demonstrably chosen race based race based over economic interests when for example they choose to work for less pay in a non-union hospital with a larger white workforce rather than in a unionized hospital with a diverse workforce or when they vote for white candidates less likely to deliver services they need than for candidates associated with multi-racial constituencies or just when they stop watching their favorite sports whether it's baseball or basketball because of the predominance of non-white players even golf is now in jeopardy with an exclamation point what what uh what evidence have you seen that golf is under threat from non-white players oh i've heard people talk about it you know because there have been some tiger woods and also some mexican players that have won um i've heard people talk about golf changing in that way and i think you know, exhibit some some racism, maybe subtle in some cases. Um, talk, if you if you um, watch golf or you read the golf news, there's a certain way in which they talk about some of the white players. I think differently than some of the non-white players. So it's you know, I'm just making uh, what I the point that I was trying to make in that section is to. Um, is to try to talk about how we we sort of learn these patterns of judgment. Um, and the patterns of judgment may not use racial terms overtly, and yet we're still using, using patterns of judgment that can be racist in the sense of making distinctions between people who are identified as having different races, um, you know, using a, a racist sort of ranking system of character traits and sports skill and the way in which we understand their skill at sports. So I was trying to, to you know, talk about a sort of system of meanings of of the ways in which we value things and we interpret things around us that can be affected by racism, even if nobody ever says anything overtly about race. I see. I think that would definitely apply, I think, for uh, in the professional basketball, I think, uh, professional football. I Tiger Woods hasn't really been Tiger Woods uh, for some time and I, it hasn't it doesn't look like there's an influx of Tiger Wood juniors or what have you uh, that ha- are following his I mean he's had one PGA championship win in the last it looks like 13 years uh, I don't 
Yeah, I don't think <laughs> it doesn't look. And and even the reason I'm bringing this up more so is because we just had Dr. Kirsten Hextrom as a guest on the program, admitted racist. She's down in Oregon and she talked about racism in sports, the long history of that and its continuance. And she talked about and profound. She talked about the over representation of white athletes in sports like golf. Uh, to just all of them, really, the overrepresentation uh, of white athletes, and I'm—I mean, I would chant, take any bet. Go look at any of the NCAA golf teams. Go look at any of the high school golf teams if they have one. Uh, go look at the pro golf circuit and see how many non-white people do you see? How many black people do you see? I don't think there's, yeah, no, no threat from no, Tiger. I, I, mm? I agree. If I could just say, I, I, of course, that's true, but it has changed and. 50 years, it used to be 100% white, and now it's not, and, you know, it's, but, yes, there's absolutely an overrepresentation of whites in the sport still. It's an expensive sport, you know, mm-hmm. that's part of the issue. I mean, it takes money. It's, it's not like soccer where you just need a ball, um, but it's an expensive sport. Absolutely. That even the reason I mentioned Dr. Hextrom, soccer is overrepresented with white people too. And she even makes the point you need quite a bit more than just a ball or a pair of shoes or a shirt for any of these sports, especially if you want to play even at the collegiate level, uh, to any, you know, level of competency, you need quite a bit more and the people who have quite a bit more of those resources are overabundantly classified as white. Amazing, because I wasn't even thinking about all of that, but she spells it out with great detail. Dr. Hextrom, just with us last week. Anywho, uh, I see the folks dialed in with questions. I get talking about Florida. I get in one quick one, and then we'll nab some of our listeners. You all can tell us if you looked at Dr. Alkoff's image, go to a search engine, see her pick. Do you think she would be accepted as white? And even, you know, have you been impacted? The discussion, man, I think she's a non-white person, man. Gus, what do you, you know, say that too. Uh, So this is the uh, book we've been chatting about, The Future of Whiteness, uh, the chapter in Analytic of Whiteness, page 73. Uh, You write, the lived experience of white privilege, favorite term, connects to a unique set of historical experiences and an ongoing cultural imaginary that affects subject formation differently for white people than it does for others. As the trove of recently published rich phenomenologies and reflexive autobiographies are beginning to reveal guilt over slavery and colonialism differentiates whites from others and whites are positioned differently within both national narratives and global ones regarding civilization in quotes affecting both perception and self-perception. And I'll stop there. Um, what I guess what evidence did you see? Do you see that a substantial number of people classified as white feel some sort of guilt about slavery and/or colonialism? Oh, I I don't um, I don't argue that a substantial number experience guilt. What I do argue is that when the topic of slavery comes up. You know, people in the United States are positioned differently vis-a-vis that history. Some will experience uh, the pain of thinking about their ancestors. 
Others will experience guilt. So that's one of the elements that distinguishes white people vis-a-vis others and distinguishes black people also in, in reference to this particular part of our national history is you can look at affect, what you know some, some theorists call affect or emotions or feelings. We can look at what are our feelings that we have that, are, that come up when we hear certain stories or we are told certain histories. And those feelings are going to be different for different racial groups. Not all white people will feel guilt, but black people aren't going to feel guilt at all. So, uh, and I think white people don't, in some cases, not in all, don't want to feel guilty. And that's what motivates the desire to change the, you know, required student curriculum because they they feel like they might feel some guilt and they don't want to feel the guilt. But guilt is not an issue for others. So that was my point there. I'm not making a claim that everybody feels guilt, unfortunately. I don't think it's the case. That's, I haven't seen any evidence that there's a, a sizable chunk of individuals classified as white that feel guilty about slavery. In fact, we were just talking about this with Dr. Jenny Bullstrode. She's in the UK and we were talking about down in, down in Florida, Ron DeSantis land where they were saying, man, you black, this is the best thing that ever happened to you negros. You got to come over here and hang out with us cool white people and everything. You could have been stuck over there in the jungles. They were just saying that. And when we talked to Dr. Bolstrode, it wasn't just that they were just literally saying almost in the same terms that I gave it to you. This is a long running trope, not of guilt, but you should be thankful. We rescued you. You should be happy about all. Look at where you are now. What if you had stayed over there? This is a long-running trope. Uh, yes, Dr. Alcoff? Yes, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's unbelievable that it continues in 2023, but it does. But there are also the, the writings that I um, cite there by um, Cuomo and Hallfellow and et cetera on, that, on page 73 will give uh, readers a different sense of, some of some other white responses to those histories. There are some other white responses to those histories, and there's some sociological work that I've read that, you know, says that it's a sizable response. Um, but it, it it's nothing. I'm not making a claim about um, it being a, a majority or anything like that. Make America great again almost sounds like you got a sizable chunk of white people who are nostalgic about the idea of going back to when I could buy a nigra and sell our offspring. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know. Uh let's see, I'll nab some of the callers as we are matriculating through here. Uh the person two two six two 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 six two. Did you have a question for Dr. Linda Martin? Alcoff, uh, and I guess, and did were you able to do a search to see her pick or what have you to see? Do you think, hey, I think she might be accepted as white, could be a suspected racist, or no, I think she would be non-white, no way, just another non-white person. Uh, two two six two should be with us. 
Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, greetings to uh, uh, listeners. Greetings to Gus. Um, to answer your question, Gus, yes, I had a chance to see Dr. Alcohol's picture. And to me, um, I would uh, assume that she was white. Um, with that being said, uh, greetings, Dr. Alcoff. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Um, my first question is, you said that uh, you had family in Florida. Was that correct? White family? Yes. White and non-white okay. family, actually. Okay. The Your white family, did they move a lot around in Florida or they were they in one location? One look, one location. Although I have family members in multiple locations, but my grandparents and and their that side of the family is pretty much in one location. Okay. All right. Um, my next question is: uh, Florida has some of the highest rates of lynchings of black males. It was uh, reported it was 257 lynchings between the time of. 1882 and 1968. Do you think your uh, family has any souvenirs from those times? Oh, God. Um, not that I know of, and I don't know of anybody who participated in any of that, but of course, I might not know, right? Because it may have happened earlier, and they might not have shared that with, with me. So it is a possibility, but I don't know of any participation or certainly of any... Uh, um, um, what did you call it? Um, mementos or that sort of thing that people kept, like a postcard or, or, um, Du Bois talks about seeing a, a piece of a person's finger, I think, in a, in a, in a shop window, um, that he passed and, um, when he was young and how horrible it was for him. Okay. Thank you for your response. Um, my next question is, uh, you said earlier about um, different forms of quote-unquote uh, racism. Do you have any example of black people dominating white people? No, I don't. Okay. All right. My uh, next question is, um, are you familiar with who benefits the most from affirmative action? Who benefits the most from segregation? Is that what you said? From affirmative action. Oh, from affirmative action. Yes, I've seen the statistics. I think people are um, are arguing now, people who are able to do that kind of empirical work, that white women have benefited the most. That's what. That's the latest thing I've seen. Do you think that's correct? Okay. Thank you for your response. Um, my question is, uh, who do you think has more power, knowledge, and understanding about maintaining the system of racism, white supremacy, non-white or white people? Uh, well, that's a tricky question because I'm not not entirely sure what you mean. Um, I mean, I think non-white people know more about racism and about uh, racist societies generally than white people do. But there is a knowledge that white people have of how to do it, 
how to engage in the practices, how to hide the practices, right? So there is a certain know-how that um, whites or some whites have had in um, perpetuating the system, um, but really understanding the system in full, I think um, the epistemic um, advantage goes to non-whites. Okay. I don't think that answered my question, but um, my next question would be, um, you said earlier that you're quote-unquote mixed. Are there any circles of white people where you're not classified as white? If so, how do they treat you? Uh, as um, Latin, and to be Latin is to experience a certain amount of uh, cultural racism and essentializing as being from an inferior culture, a part of the world in which there's constant coup d'etats and violence and it's more primitive um, and behind uh, Western you know, majority societies like the United States. I mean, one one example I can give is, you know, people kept saying that if the southern borders in Texas and Arizona and so forth were continued to allow Mexicans and Central Americans to come across the border and populate the United States, that the United States would become a third world country. So I was trying to figure out at some point, why would the United States become a third world country because people from Latin America were coming into the United States? And I think the only way to understand the logic of that kind of idea is by use of a certain kind of racism. We might call it cultural racism or um, kind of ethnic essentialism that sees people from Latin America as less civilized, uh, less rational. Um, you know, that the idea is that they have big families and are more religious and are more prone to violence um, and that they're going to bring those cultural elements with them to the United States and bring the United States down. So it's that kind of view that um, I've certainly experienced. Thank you kindly, caller 2262. Now our next caller. Have you seen Driving Miss Daisy, Dr. Alcoff? I forced myself to watch that movie. It was painful to watch, but yes, I did. Oh, okay. It's my favorite, one of my favorite movies. Uh, victim in New Jersey, uh, did you have a question for Dr. Linda Martin Alcoff? Forced herself to watch the great Morgan Freeman in Driving Miss Daisy. Hey, how you doing, uh, Gus and Dr. Alcoff? Uh, am I coming in clear? I just have to ask. I want to make sure. Pretty I good. Self-respect, and I can be heard. Okay. Um, doctor. Oh, and I've seen the picture of the doctor, and I also think that she was on Democracy Now. So, if I was to walk in the room, see uh, Dr. Alcoff, I'm, I'm hope I'm pronouncing the man correctly, and Amy Goodman, I would both think I was in the room with two white women. Um, okay. 
you made a distinction when the last guest asked, uh, it, was, it was referring to um, being treated different if you were, uh, if people knew that you were not Hispanic. Uh, and you made a distinction between Latin America and the majority West. Um, is Latin America located in the West? Yes, that's an interesting question that's a lot been written about because obviously it's in the Western Hemisphere, right? This is the way we define the Western Hemisphere. Um, but it is um, a, a, a um, continent, South America and Central America and the Caribbean, that has a different mix of peoples and a different history than North America. It was colonized primarily by the Spaniards and the Portuguese, and they had a different method of colonization than the English did in uh, North America. So there's some, there's some differences that are not always classified as typical West. I mean, the other problem is this term West. What does it really mean? When we think of the West, we don't normally think of Spain or Portugal or Greece. The West, the personification of the West is England, Northern Europe, Germany, France, you know, Holland. Um, that's what, you know, generally gets characterized as the culture of the West, the culture of the Enlightenment, its thought, the culture of science is, is Northern Europe. Um, and England, and not Southern Europe. So, it's so Latin America has a different cultural and ethnic and racial mix, and some elements of a different history that make it sometimes not seen as fully West or as as Western as the United States is, even though it's partially Western. Okay, um, I heard you read uh, White Left. Um, my next question, two-part question pertaining to left. Um, what is your definition of left and what is your definition of right? Or white, left, white, right? I'm sorry, I'm, I got the word white, but what was the other word that you're saying? Maybe I could get some help from uh, white, Beth about. Like, like white, right, 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 left, right, white, like left wing, right. Oh, left. Oh, yeah. okay, okay, left. Well, you know, I think different people define the left in different ways. Um, certainly, it's a contested term. But I'm thinking of people who want um, economic justice in the, in the society, people who want socialism in the society. Generally speaking, that's what I'm thinking of when I think about the left. And, uh, and did you want me to of the right of white or or or, or, yes, or you mean white, right white. like? Oh, the right, right. Yeah, yeah, the right right wing, right. Well, I think um, the right wing it is, for my purposes, 
it's useful to define them as wanting to go back. They want to go back to a more total white dominant society. They want to go back to a more total male dominant society and a Christian dominant society. Um, that's what the right wing wants. Okay. Do you think, in, um, no, just, just, just your opinion, um, who is more racist? Is this the, um, the white right or the white left? Well, I think both can be racist. Um, absolutely both can be racist. So there's, there's, you know, and this is, but I think I have hope that some people on the left um, can be, uh, can overcome and, you know, I think have been motivated to try to bring about racial justice as well as economic justice. Whereas I think in the right wing, uh, it's a harder sell to make with them. Much obliged, victim in New Jersey. Just trying to nab our callers. Caller at 9029. Thank you, everybody, for being efficient. Got their questions ready to roll. 9029, did you have a question for Dr. Alkoff? Should be with us. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, callers, listeners. Dr. Alkoff, uh, thank you for spending time with us on this uh, Wednesday evening. Um, first off, one of the questions I have was, how far back does your research go when it comes to discussing what white is? Are you dealing essentially only with the Americas or are you going back to, you know, European times, you know, in the early first stages of colonialism? I just wanted to know. Yes. Um, it's an interesting problem. Like how do we date it? Because some people date whiteness as really only emerging in the 1700s, whereas other people think there's, um, you know, historians are, are arguing over this as we speak. They think that there, there was a meaning of the term before the 1700s. So um, I'm not a historian. I read the historians and I read their debates. Um, I think for Mostly what I'm talking about is the kind of of concept of whiteness that really became very strong in the 1700s in in this in the Western Hemisphere, this part of the world. So even though I would, think would there's that, some, go ahead. No, I was just asking. Would that be during the era of? Um, oh my gosh, I can't. Forget. Would that be during the era of Bacon's Rebellion, if I'm correct, or before that? Yes, I think so. I think so. But I think, I think, you know, when, for example, um, the, the Irish played a key role here, and the white part of my family is Irish, so I followed this history. But because the Irish were not classified as white by people in England, and so there was a problem. What do we do with these Irish indentured servants? What do we call them? So I think one of the ways, one of the useful things that the category of whiteness did when it emerged was it, it grouped all of these people together into one grouping. And that was useful for elites to 
you know, try to gather a majority in support of a white supremacist structure to make it broader than it was previously um, and to begin to classify the Irish as white in order to bring them into the fold, so to speak, of the white supremacist political structure. Okay. I guess it's the same thing you said earlier in regards to people that classify themselves as Jewish, right? Yes, although I think I think Jews have been more back and forth, whereas the Irish are kind of solidly white at this point, although they still experience a certain kind of cultural prejudice from um, people in England. Um, but okay. there's, they're more solidly white, I think, now. I understand. Also, being from, you know, um, you're coming from your background and, and, and having a family that is so-called mixed, has there been a conversation about, because um, Panama is classified as not white, but predominantly people in Panama, if I'm correct, speak Spanish, right? Yes, they do. Absolutely. Now, is there, have there been conversations within your space as to what classifies as Hispanic, Latin, Latinx, Afro, Afro-Latinx, and Spanish? Like, what is the difference between all these different types of groupings? Or is it something that um, Gus mentioned earlier, which is kind of conflating things and causing some kind of confusion the same way that we would say, you know, um, borderline white, a little bit white, and almost like, you know, those genders, those different, I'm sorry, racial classifications we spoke about earlier. What 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 has been your knowledge in regards to that? Yes, there have been many different terms that people have used to describe themselves and their communities, and it's changed, just like Black terms have changed from, you know, different terms in, since the 1960s. The term Hispanic is used more on the West Coast. The term Latino is used more on the East Coast. Um, the term Chicano was invented in the 1960s as a kind of politic- politicization of the categories. In Latin America, people do not refer to themselves as Latinos. They think that's ridiculous. They refer to themselves as Panamanian or Nicaraguan or Colombian, um, right? And maybe sometimes also as Latin American. But the term Latino is really not not used uh, in anywhere south of the border, really, um, which is interesting. So some of these term differences are just within the United States. Um, and I think the the reckoning that's going on in Latin America today about its racial diversity and its racism has engendered terms like Afro-Brazilian or Afro-Colombian or Afro-Panamanian, which in some ways you know, you would think, well, maybe we shouldn't use that term because, of course, Brazilians come in all colors and and we should just understand that Brazil doesn't mean white. But it's 
was a way that Brazil was actually ahead of, I think, the other countries in, in Latin America. In the 1960s, it had a black consciousness movement that was very important, still ongoing. And they really tried to push um, more understanding of the way racism worked in Brazil. In some ways, you know, racism, anti-black racism works differently in Latin America than it does in the United States because it doesn't work on the basis of the one drop rule. It works on the basis of colorism. So it's all about the shade you are. It's all about the texture of your hair and all, you know, those sorts of things. That's what determines your status, not whether or not you are on one side of this imaginary line or on the other side of the imaginary line. Um, but racism is, is very strong and very old and still ongoing. And so there's been uh, efforts to talk about um, the different experiences of Afro-Brazilians, Afro-Panamanians, Afro-Colombians, and, and to talk about that different experience and different relationship to the nations, people needed to have that specific term. So that's why it has emerged. So I don't know if that, I don't know um, that answers all the parts of your question, but it gives you maybe some sense of why we have a variety. Much obliged. We'll nap our next caller. Uh, let's see, three four three eight three four three eight. Did you have a question for Dr. Linda Martin Alcoff? We've been talking about the future of whiteness. Uh, three four three eight. Greetings, Mr. Gus. Uh, greeting, uh, Dr. Alcoff. Uh, greetings to all the callers and the listeners. Um, I just had um, Dr. Alcoff. You had said that uh, you had wrote the book um, because uh, you said, well, well, you said that uh, you wanted to talk about whiteness and. You wanted to. We needed to talk about it. You said that uh, white people they don't want to talk about whiteness. Um, can you give us some examples of uh, why they don't want to talk about it? Um, and did they try to sabotage your work in any kind of way? Well, I have been hacked and hounded by fascists, but that's another story. I mean, I think the, I think you know. Once we've gotten clear on the science of race, and we all know now that it has nothing to do with DNA, that there's no biological or scientific basis for these racial categories as used to be thought, then some people said, well, racial categories have no meaning and we should stop using them. And some of the people who said that were white and some of the people who said that were not white, like Anthony Appiah or Naomi Zak or others. So it was a big debate among people who were trying to chart an anti-racist future and to address racism. But um, I think it's a mistake to think that this, the DNA definition of race is the only one. I think we still have racial categories uh, based on, you know, the way we look, uh, for example, that operate in our societies in a very powerful way. And we need those categories of race 
we need to use them, we need to understand their history and their use, and sometimes we should try to imagine some different uses in the future that can um, counteract uh, racist effects. So I was one of those many, like Charles Mills and others, who argued for continuing to use racial categories and race terms, even though there's no scientific basis of race, but there is a social basis of race. There's a political basis of race. It doesn't mean it's unchanging. It doesn't mean it's hopeless. It doesn't mean that we'll call ourselves by the same sort of terms 100 years from now that we do today, but it does mean that right now we need to face it, we need to address it openly, and we need to deal with it, and for that we need these racial terms. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, you said a whole lot. Uh, I have, so, okay, one of those racial terms that you said was uh, anti-racist. Uh, can, you give, can you define anti-racist? Well, I guess what I mean is just um, the effort to eliminate racism or reduce it as as much as possible. And of course, people are going to have different ideas about how to do that and what you're doing. But but that's what I mean by anti-racism. Okay. Okay. Um. So when you say anti-racism, um, when you, anti is a uh, is there a such thing as a pro-racist? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, there are some quite unapologetic. Um, and I think the word anti-racism has the advantage of, of it's not saying um, we're not racist. It's about a commitment to be part of a movement to try to make change, to make um, positive change in regard to the levels of racism in our society. So that's the difference. It's not, for me, so much about um uh, you know, whether you have uh, racism or not, because I think all of us in our in this society have uh, been infected by racist ideas, but it's about what are you committed to? What do you what are you willing to take action toward um, to make change? Okay, so you said. Okay, you said we all have racist ideas. Are are you a racist? Well, I I like to think that I'm not, but I also believe that um, it is possible that there are things I still have to learn about racism. So I don't I don't want to say that I'm not a racist because that that assumes. I have nothing left to learn, and I I don't think anybody anybody should should make that assumption. Okay, I got one last question. Um, do you think that uh, you're a beneficiary of affirmative, of affirmative action? I know for, for a uh, fact that I yeah, yes I I know for a fact that I'm a beneficiary of affirmative action. Definitive. No pussyfooting there. Right on. <laughs> um, you mentioned the term anti-racist a number of times in the book. 
uh, it pops up very early on on page two where you talk about a filmmaker and author uh, Michael Moore he's a white guy um, saying that he's an example of an anti-racist does Michael Moore label himself an anti-racist uh, to tell you the truth I'm not sure I think I think he he would accept that um, you know as a at least as an intention on his part as something he tries to to do on his part I've I've heard I'm familiar with Michael Moore. Uh, we're wrapping up Columbine tomorrow, amongst other things. He's written books and that sort of thing. Um, Columbine's not his only work, but I've never heard him refer to himself as an anti-racist. I'm going to have to go back to see if he actually uh, uses that term, um, much less if it's earned. Do you know who Isaiah Scholes is by chance? No, I don't. Okay. Did you see Bowling for Columbine? the documentary that Michael Moore did? I did. I did a long time ago. Yes. Okay. Many people did. I think easily one of the most popular documentaries of all time, even still uh, some almost 25 years later, that is still the case. You would not, this is in my view to Michael Moore's so-called anti-racist credentials. Isaiah Shoals is the one black person who was killed out of the 13 fatalities at Columbine when those Mm. two cowardly white killers killed Isaiah Shoals it's recorded on the 911 call Dylan Klebo mom we're wrapping up her memoir tomorrow says hey Reb we found a nigra and they drag Mm. him out from the table and kill him on the spot we had listeners who said wow that's like a lynching Jesus Michael Moore Mm. Jr. with all of his anti-racist bona fides so-called does not say one peep about any of that and that information was available pretty much immediately Uh, people that were in the library when this happened reported that yep called him a nigra dragged him out shot and killed him the only and in a school that didn't have a whole lot of black people a racially restricted region deliberately designed to keep the nigras out and Isaiah Scholl gets killed. Michael Moore Jr. does not mention his name at all or what he did or the fact that those cowardly white killers were all about Adolf Hitler and were known by their white classmates to be very racist. That's in the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office report. None of that is in Columbine. Mm-hmm. At any rate, let's see. That's interesting. Beyond interesting, those omissions, like even we had people that was their only understanding of Columbine was Michael Moore's film. We spent since April, we've been studying Columbine. Folks have said that they are ashamed that they used to think, wow, he is saying something progressive. He's got a cartoon about black. Why not just tell what happened to Isaiah Shoals? We don't need some goofy cartoon. Tell him what happened to Isaiah Shoals. At least make sure we know his name. Nah, nah, nah. Let's see. Uh, caller in Florida. Hey, how about that? Retired firefighter in Florida. Do you have a question for Dr. Alcoff? Greetings, everyone. Uh, first, I would uh, stick with the, uh, the, uh, the first question that the host uh, asks us to report on. 
I think I saw uh, one of your, uh, several of your pictures and your appearance uh, uh, to me looks exactly like a, uh, uh, what I would describe as a middle-aged white female. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, as a, as a uh, white person or a non-white person filling out a report on you, uh, and you would not have the chance to help them with that decision. I would suspect that they would identify you as a white female, you know, such as a law enforcement report, uh, or if you are unconscious, something like that, and you couldn't participate in the process, I think they would classify you as a white woman. Uh, my, I have three questions. Uh, the first question is, are any other forms of racism, as I think you mentioned, there are other forms of racism. Are they are they functional, or are they as functional as the global system of racism and white supremacy? No, I don't think they're as functional. No, but they okay. they are functional. I mean, there there's incidents in our society, but you know, they're not, not as powerful, not as functional, not as sweeping. Um, certainly. Uh, my next question is, are forms of non-white people mistreating each other? Uh, do you think that is a reaction to the global system of racist white supremacy? Well, you know, it's that's a an a hard question to answer. I don't I probably can't answer it because I think you know that gets us to try to figure out the history of racism. Um if you read Vijay Prashad's book The Darker Peoples of the Earth or something like that is the name of it. It's a great book. It's and it's about um relations between different countries um, of people of color, as we would maybe call them today. And there is um, sometimes a hatred based on what people look like, what kind of food they eat, that sort of thing. But um, it's, you know, it's not clear that it works in the same way as white supremacy does. So I, I would defer here. I think the historians are are um, unearthing more historical accounts of different kinds of ethnic and race-based hatreds in ancient history. But whether we, we want to call it the same thing, you know, is is really the question. Okay. Well, my last question you definitely should be able to answer uh the question uh what do you mean when you say that you are a philosopher and what do you mean when you say that you are a feminist and that's all okay. i have questions i have okay thank you um well i am a you know professional philosopher so i make a living as a philosopher teaching philosophy classes and writing philosophy. But 
in my view, and there's a number of philosophers who would agree with me, everybody on earth is a philosopher. <laughs> so it's, um, it's an equal opportunity exercise to think about the world and what one knows and what one thinks one knows and to critique it and to critique other people's ideas. I think this is very, very common practice. It's a kind of a universal human pra practice. Um, but I am one of those lucky enough to be able to make a living to get a salary for reading philosophy, teaching philosophy, and writing philosophy. And in that sense, I'm, I'm that kind of a philosopher. Um, and I, I am a feminist. Um, there are many different kinds of feminists. And I think of myself as a decolonial feminist, um, which means that I think that there are there's more than one way to think about gender liberation. That one of the problems of white liberal feminism um, has been that there's an assumption that there's only one way to think about gender liberation. One form of the family, one idea about workplaces, one idea about everything in your life that is liberating and everything else is seen as um, as sexist. And I think that that's not the case. I think in cultures around the world, in some cultures, there's gender-based divisions of labor. Women do one kind of work and men do another kind of work. And in some of those societies, it's sexist because you have male dominance. And in other kinds of societies, it's not sexist because women have real political power and they have real power in the household. So I, I think, um, so for me, feminism is plural. It doesn't mean one particular specific narrow idea of how we should live and how we should be. I think there's multiple ways, but, it, but a feminist is somebody who believes that women deserve equal power at home, in the workplace, in the society, and in every sphere. Thank you, kindly firefighter. I think our first female caller, uh, 9086, did you have a question for Dr. Alkoff? Yeah, thanks for letting me speak. You said, are you a philosopher? Are you just a student of philosophy? Or are you like a professor, doctor? I'm a professor. Okay. And philosophy, what is that? Just basically just reading a lot? I mean, like, what do you do as, you know, I'm just trying to understand. Right. Um, well, it's, an, it's a practice that every culture has, has practiced to try to understand how we should live, how we should live together, and what the meaning of life is and um, what kind of future we want to create for ourselves. So it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of, um, of reflection 
about our lives and our societies built into philosophy. It's just that we don't do it like scientists do it. We don't do it like social scientists do it. We don't do it through statistical analysis or empirical analysis. We do it through looking at concepts and ideas. Okay. And with what you do with philosophy, and are a lot of black people into philosophy? Do you have a lot of black students or a lot of black professors that you know that are in philosophy? Well, it's really changed in the last um, 30 to 40 years. In the in the 1970s, um, there began to be a number of black philosophers in the United States, and we have a substantial community now. Um, and there's some wonderful books written, um, and there's a lot of a lot of work. But it goes back in the United States, uh, way back to the 18th century, 19th century, there were philosophers like W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass, who's also read as a philosopher, and Martin Delaney, who's read as a philosopher, um, and a number of other writers and theorists who were asking questions about how we should live and how can we live together and questions about identity and so forth. So there's a there's a long tradition in um, black culture and a growing community of black philosophers, um, both as students and as professors today in the United States. There's less less in Europe. I think we're we're doing better than they are. Okay, thank you. Cal's listeners should be familiar with two black philosophers, one quoted, cited in The Future of Whiteness, uh, Charles, the late Charles W. Mills, guest on the program with us in 2009, uh, officially by trade listed as a philosopher and then author of The Man Not Race Class Genre and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. Dr. Tommy J. Curry also listed by trade philosopher. So we've heard from two. Uh, on this broadcast, uh, I think our last caller, zero six six six. Did you have a question for Doctor Alcoff? Yes. Greetings, Gus um, and Doctor Alcoff. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Greetings, um, Doctor Alcoff. Are people with albinism included in your research, and are they or are they not considered white? And can you explain why or why not? Are you asking about um, albino people? Yes, people with albinism, yes. Oh, yes. Well, I think they're uh, not, they're not all necessarily white because although they have white skin, uh, some come from different families and have different other features. Their hair might be different and so forth. So I don't think albinos is the same category as sort of racial whiteness. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your answer. Uh, My next question, uh, from your knowledge and experience being a white person and being around other white people, 
Do you think that a majority of white people want to live, work, and learn with and or around black people? Well, I, I can't give a definitive answer because I think that um, requires, you know, some quantitative empirical research. I mean, I don't hang too often with people who who who, do, who are avowedly, obviously racist. So um, my circle of people that I work with and that I teach with and my students would not be a good sample of the United States in general. But I do follow the opinion surveys in the United States. And it's interesting to me how they have changed and what I think, based on my reading of the opinion surveys on questions of race and racism um, that are given to white people in the United States, is that about half of white people um, want a multiracial future and agree with uh, people of color on many important questions. So, for example, about half of white people agree that racism infects the justice system and affects police treatment um, in the United States and affects the prison population um, and, you know, various things like that. So I don't want to be too overly optimistic. And I don't think that if if that is the case, if it is the case that 50% of white people agree with people of color, I don't think that means that that percentage will continue to grow until we have 100%. I don't think that's the way these things work. But I think um, it is the case that um, the opinion surveys show a real change in my lifetime, and I am a middle-aged person, as the previous caller uh, called me out when he looked at my picture. Um, there, there have been changes um, in, in my lifetime uh, in the white population. Uh, and so at this point, it looks like about half agree with people of color. But, you know, that number could go down as well as it might go up a bit. But I don't think it's going to, you know be uh, 100% anytime soon, or perhaps ever. Mm -hmm. I don't think you answered my question 100%, but uh, thank you for your response. Uh, another question, uh, are you afraid of Black males? And have you ever felt fearful in the presence of Black males? And can you explain one or two instances? Do let me know if if I didn't answer something, and you know I'll try again. Um, no, I'm not afraid of black males, and I don't remember any incident where I've been afraid of black males. Um, I think the the problem is that um, you know when we attach fear to a racial identity, you might be afraid of a particular individual, but uh, when you attach the fear to a particular racial aspect, then, you know, that's a, that's a, um, a form of racism. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, thank you for your response. And last question. Uh, 
Uh, thank you again for your time. Uh, do you believe that white people and non-white people should engage in sexual intercourse while the system of white supremacy exists? And that would be my last question. Thank you. Oh, that's a tough question, I guess. Um, I mean, I think that it is going to continue to happen. People find people attractive and sometimes people find people like them attractive and sometimes they find people unlike them attractive. Sometimes they find commonalities that they don't expect. Um, and so I, I think it's, I think sex between people of different colors and races will continue. And, uh, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with it. It depends on the reasons why. Sometimes people fetishize the racial identity of the person that they're attracted to. You know, they're they're fixated on having unlawful sex or having sex that transgresses some boundaries. And that worries me because then it's like you're not seeing the person as a person. You're seeing them as their racial identity and it sort of, you know, gets you excited. So I worry about that kind of objectification occurring. And because of our racist culture, it's certainly possible for that objectification to be happening, you know, a lot of the time. But I'm not convinced that it happens all the time. So I would not say that um, there should not be sex um, between people of um, different races. I think we just need to be wary of of all the ways in which um, our attraction could be affected by racism of one sort or another. Much obliged. Uh, you cited the opinion survey about, you said, approximately half of the white people agree with black people that racism is a problem in the criminal justice system and what have you now actually doing something about that is totally different, but uh, I'm just looking at, you know, uh, in terms of uh, opinion, whatever that's worth, I'd really look at rather look at behaviors, especially with white people because they say anything. Uh, Dr. Hextrom just last week, special admission, she writes the state relies on, and she we on the program asked, I said, is the state equal synonymous with white, the system of white supremacy? She said, yes, no pussyfooting. The state, i.e. the system of white supremacy, relies on relational powers, in this case, relationships with white communities to entrench hierarchies. White people have continuously chosen to move to and invest in majority white areas over minority over non-white areas the resorting resulting formal removal and relational powers of the state have returned u.s education's race-based segregation and corresponding inequality to pre-1954 levels the U today the u.s educational system is more racially segregated than before Brown v. Board of Education. That's a sort of uh, statistic, and this is not like new. I hadn't seen this. This was not the first time that I saw this information last week because they repeated this 
when they had the 60 year anniversary of this case, which was before this book was published. Is this new information? You were aware of this, Dr. Alkoff? Well, not as a nationwide phenomena, but I do agree that you have to look at practices and not just opinions. But, you know, but I do find the opinions also important to look at. Um, if they're held sincerely, they will guide practice. But I think there's a lot of really good work out there now that is looking at, um, you know, practices and about education choices that people make in the society as an indication of their strongly held beliefs. So I, I just I wasn't aware that there you could make national, nationwide sort of um, characterizations of this. But that's interesting. I'll Not have to follow up. It's footnoted. Her book, Special Admissions, this is page 75 going into 76, and she has uh, lots of citations for everything that I just uh, said about the uh, mm-hmm. increased levels of so-called segregation, uh, where that sort of thing just makes it a lot more explicit to me in terms of dedication to racism, white supremacy. And in fact, when I look at something like that, uh, and I look at uh, your report, this is uh, on page 137, or excuse me, make sure I get my page number correct, uh, on the future of whiteness. That's where I got uh, moved from, where you write, this is, or oh, I did have it, or close enough, 128, you write, multiracial, multi-ethnic political coalitions exist all around us, from Occupy movements to the struggle to end police violence, to the fight for the dignity of immigrants to daily labor struggles. What we lack, however, is a new imaginary or narrative that can make sense of the white participation in these new racially conscious counter publics. One can sometimes see a groping toward this among the armies of white progressives in anti-racist struggles who cannot quite articulate why they are in the room. Now that's one where I said, wow, like what armies of white progressives in anti-racist struggles, all of it really like armies. Are there white people out there allegedly fighting against racism who, I mean, armies to me suggest they might even be Dylan storm roof. Like they've got military apparatus and you know, they're not going to take it anymore. So when you say armies, what do you mean? Well, I meant that just, you know, metaphorically in terms of numbers of militants, but um, I'm sure you're aware of the numbers of white people who came out for the demonstrations for Black Lives Matter. Now, there's been some work on how the numbers uh, fluctuated. They were really high in 2020, and then they came down some, and so we're still sort of assessing the fluctuating numbers but yes there there have been many many thousands and thousands of white people who have um come out and have um risked uh, risked arrest who have been arrested risked police violence um to put an end to racism in, in the society i've seen it that's really uh Dr. Alkoff, you are cheating 
because you said this in 2015 prior to all the George Floyd hubbub. So were you seeing armies of white people uh, in the so-called anti-racist struggle at the time this book was published in 2015, which was again the year Trump's victory campaign started and Dylan Storm Roof. You were seeing armies of whites in the so-called anti-racist struggle at this time? Yes, I, I mean, I've been an activist since uh, the, the early 1970s. So my experience of activism in the United States goes from the 1970s. So, right, when I, I didn't mean to be cheating, but when I referenced um, the, the huge demonstrations in 2020, I just think that's, I know that's familiar to a lot of people. There was a lot of discussion at that point about the numbers of white people out there, the numbers of non-black people, too. I mean, the numbers of Asians, the numbers of of others um, who were out also supporting the movement and how to understand it, um, whether to trust it, um, whether it would stay. So there was there was discussion. But I've seen it since uh, since I was a young activist in the in the early 1970s. Um, there were, you know, there, we, we tell certain stories about the 1960s and the 1970s that are pretty caricatured and pretty incorrect about what was really going on. There was this, there was this really interesting group, um, called the Southern Patriots. Did you ever hear of that group? Let's tell me some details. I'll tell you if it's familiar. They were white working class uh, kids, young people, who, you know, presented themselves with a kind of white aesthetic um, using um, pomaded hair and, you know, white T-shirts with cigarettes stuck in the sleeve of their T-shirt and so forth. And they um, made common cause with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. And so they, they had the idea that the white working class would be, and you could create a kind of coalition between the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, which was a Puerto Rican liberation group. And uh, this group, um, and it's written about in a, a really interesting book on Hillbilly, uh, Hillbillies and Urban Rebels um, by Amy Sunny and another person whose name I forget, but I, I know I referenced that in The Future of Whiteness, so you'd find that in the bibliography too. So there's some untold story, and I think it's, it's not a coincidence that these stories are relatively untold because I think um, elite who control the media largely in our society don't want people to get ideas about the possibility of making coalition despite our differences to make um, a kind of, you know, socialist change. Hmm. That's uh, the young patriots that did come back to me. I just didn't know the name, but I remember uh, the Black Panthers having these sort of coalitions and what have you, which just made them further targets of Cointelpro. Uh, and 
assassination of people like Fred Hampton, uh, Mark Clark. We talked about them earlier this summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, My retort, I think white people do a lot, in my view, gross overstating of white people who are not racist. We talked about Atticus Finch at the beginning of this program, and he's not even a quality example of a non-racist white person. And it's fiction. We've had white people come on this program and do the same thing and point to the help and Skeeter. Why had to do a double take and say, do you mean the fictional book about Mississippi? Said, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. James, excuse me, John Brown. Where I've had to do the same thing. (laughs) Okay, I guess we did get a historical figure, but I mean, geez, you got to go all the way back to the 1800s to find a white person who was allegedly not racist. And it just goes on and on. They'll pick those two white boys that died with James Cheney, where they get all of this attention because they died. When you have all of these other black people who died in the first place, you wouldn't have even had all of this response for Freedom Summer if it had just been James Cheney, where his the white parents of the two white boys who were killed with James Cheney in Mississippi in 1964 agree with the logic of what I'm saying but these people come to grossly over represent white people are dedicated to racism that's why it's worse than things were in 1954 not because you have armies of white people in the anti-racist struggle because white people by and large lockstep they are dedicated to white supremacy racism and that's why we are where we are these I'll put it this way. Those individuals that you mentioned, even Ann Braden, we had uh, Catherine Fosel as a guest on the program. The Ann Bradens of the world, regardless of whether you think they're racist or not, which is a hugely important question, they are not statistically significant compared to the white people who are committed to white supremacy racism. I'm just looking at the logic of we still got this problem. Am I being logical, Dr. Alcoff? Yes, I think there is a lot of uh, inflated um, percentages given out, you know, in sort of informal talk all the time. I absolutely agree with that. But I think the, you know, I follow, I try to follow the sociologists, the historians, the people who are really trying to get at what's, you know, what has been the reality. And um, and that's not going to be any kind of a, a happy picture. But I think there are significant um, percentages. Anne Braden, you know, was a very, you know, she took a lot of risks. So, so somehow we have to balance it out. We have to, we have to acknowledge the white people who have put their lives on the line, in some cases lost their lives, like Schwerner and Goodman, um, without giving them all the, the credit. Somehow it, 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 their life it has more meaning because they didn't have to lose their life in an anti-racist struggle. And, you know, that, that kind of logic is really, really troubling, of course. So we, we have to sort of, on one hand, uh, look at what the facts are and give people credit uh, on the other hand, constantly criticize the ways in which um, uh, 
white we're we're looking for white saviors and white heroes um and uh missing you know what is the more accurate story which is that the struggle against racism has been led by people of color and they have suffered the most and endured the most hardship Timothy Wise is really popular uh currently uh, Viola Louisa, they have whole documentaries on her and talk about her. In fact, uh, Reverend James Reeb, he takes over the Selma movie uh, where it's focused on what happened in black people organizing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. A white man is killed. Like, I think the white people that they allege are not racist, they get lots of attention. As I said, it's greatly overstated. They are not uh, statistically significant. The most important thing, things are worse now than they were in 1954. And that is because of white dedication to racism. Anywho, uh, more I could have pulled out. We got all of our listeners who dialed in and such. Uh, Man, much obliged for uh, allowing us to uh, prod, give some pushback with the questions. And even our listeners got a a, uh, I don't know what you call it, a, a search aspect, a visual search aspect where they could go and see what they think of your uh, so-called white presentation. Uh, but we've been chatting it up about the book, The Future of Whiteness. Uh, our guest philosopher, uh, Dr. Linda Martin Alcoff, uh, much obliged uh, for chiming in, hanging out. Uh, giving us more detail about the book. I would have never guessed that's what you were implying with that section about Rambo and To Kill a Mockingbird. So I have, uh, I learned quite a bit uh, just from chatting it up and more than what I would have just I got just from reading the book. But uh, yeah, thanks a bunch for, for sharing a bit of your time this Wednesday evening. Thank you for the invitation. I, I got a lot out of this conversation. It was, it was quite helpful for me as well. Awesome. The book, again, The Future of Whiteness. Uh, She has lots of material. You can check it out. Critical race theorist, feminist, uh, suspected racist. I think unanimously, at least the folks who answered. uh, Dr. Linda Martin Alcoff. Uh, Much obliged and uh, enjoy the rest of your Wednesday, Dr. Alcoff. Thank you. Take care. Yes, ma'am. Dr. Linda Martin Alkoff hanging out with us this okay. Wednesday evening. Yes, ma'am. Hanging out with us this Wednesday evening. Wow. Worked my brain computer quite a bit. Wow. We'll be here tomorrow. Got to mention Sue Klebold. Columbine will finish all that up um, tomorrow evening. Same broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Man, book club. Cannot wait. Um, wow. Had to work my brain computer. Had to work my brain computer. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Uh, Yeah, we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll get thoughts uh, from folks who dialed in, see if they have uh, thoughts, observations from our guest. And uh, I'll take a minute to collect my thoughts before we wrap everything up. Context of white supremacy. We will be right back. And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that, and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, 
the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give them some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way and indirectly see ourselves that way. Context of White Supremacy. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com You'll see the PayPal button top right corner. You'll see the links Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal all right there. Much obliged for all of our investors who've kept the cows on the air 14-plus Years. Hopefully, we have been worthy of your time and energy. Man, I will have to say, this was a challenging broadcast. Uh, I read the foot, or not the footnote, I read the actual text from the book Whiteout, David Herzberg, white man, racist suspect, where he mentions this book, Dr. Alcoff. I said, wow, because he was talking about white people, the demographic shift and all that. So I thought it was going to be a lot about, uh, you know, the future of whiteness. It was right in the title. I thought it was going to be about anxiety and what are we going to do and percentage of white people dropping. Now, that does come up in the book, but that's not really the main focus. Even as she said, she told us that she was thinking of white people on the left, so-called Uh, talking to them and about their unwillingness to talk about whiteness being classified as white. So that is, you know, Hey, I'm, I am not a white person, much less on the left. So I was not really uh, the person that she had in mind uh, for targeting 
with this text and it was not what I was thinking in terms of the focus on white people and the demographics, which I think if, if you have that firmly in mind, like, oh man, and even like, wow, this book came out, you even heard it at the end where she was talking about, you know, an opinion poll where half of the white people, they agree with black people that racism is a problem and like, so are they going to do anything to solve this? Or are they just, oh yeah, the Negros, they get a bad breakdown when they go down to the judge. Mm-hmm. So should we do anything about this? Oh, no, 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 I don't. <laughs> it sure is tough, but yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> what does that, come on, come on. Amongst people who have shown white people solve problems, all kinds of problems. Racism? Yeah, yeah. This is what they want. That's what I think is so important. Mr. Fuller says that he's one of the few people who says that. And I think that is important. If you go into this thinking, we just need to write books and convince the good white people, the well-meaning white people, the white people on the left, the armies of progressive white people, whatever that means. If we can convince them to do right, do well by the Negro, we can get this problem solved. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. That doesn't even make sense. Like, come on, come on. And white people are a minority on the planet. Dr. Welsing talks about that all the time. It's not even that many of them. Come on, come on. Uh, this is another one where we got a lot of uh, over uh, kind of focusing on so-called well-meaning white people and the white people that were running around in the 60s smoking Reefer, and I'm not going to Vietnam either. I'm with Ali. Well, I guess I can't say I'm with Ali because, you know, they never called me Negro, but I'm not a Negro. But still, I'm not going to old Vietnam. No way. They want to stand out and run around in the street, smoke a lot of reefer and free sex and free love and all that, or making pipe bombs. Will Ayers, he was a guest on the program. We've heard all that. We still got this problem. Some of those folks, they were just able to re- write really cool memoirs about all of their shenanigans from the 1960s and now they got nice cushy jobs at colleges seen that oodles of it might even be our guest hey if she's classified as white yeah that would be her I've seen whole you know they got eons of that that's not helping can't even really convince me that that's working against racism. We got old admitted racist Timothy Wise. He gets mentioned in the book, but he's not classified as a racist. Very common. Same thing with Jane Elliott, although she's not mentioned in this here text. Uh, let's see. The This book was so unpleasant to read like it makes at least for me it makes such a an impact not just and I don't mean not reading a book that you don't like but reading a book that I felt was not honest in many points that's the way I would have to say it just not like uh, page 25 even that the one that I read read armies of progressive whites and she said there's so many metaphors in this book like Jesus Christ I mean are you serious? And then she's quoting comedians too. Like it's hard to take a book like this seriously. I kept saying that over and over. Like I generally do not read books about racism that, you know, I can like this book is not serious. This person is joking around. You're quoting comedians repeatedly. 
Uh, I was looking for Chris Rock. Like, you know, where is he at? You are not serious. Uh, even in fact, I think this, uh, this sentence sums it up. I'm going to pick out some of the things that I think are just inaccurate as well. But, uh, she says, we've been throwing the word racism around, or excuse me, we've been throwing around the word racism. She uses the royal we, where it's just myself, one person, but as opposed to saying, I've been throwing around the term racism, we've been throwing around the, the term racism. Everything about this sentence, I have in all the years that we've been on the program, I've never read an author, white or non-white, use the royal form of we, where it's just one person, I would suffice. No. We and throwing around the term racism. That's another metaphor. And it's what? <laughs> like this is supposed to be like really important information and talking about serious material. What do you mean throwing around the term racism? We've read other philosophers. It's not like philosophers have to talk like this. Dr. Tommy Curry doesn't use lots and lots of metaphors. He doesn't write with the royal we. He's not throwing around the term racism. He explains what he means when he says racism. He explains what he means when he says black misandry. Charles W. Mills does the same thing. He's a philosopher. You don't have to talk like this. This is what I mean when I read the book. It's like, oh, yeah, this is someone classified. I, I looked at the image first, said, oh, I think this is a white woman. And then when I read the book, the only thing that threw me was at the beginning where she said, I have one white parent and one non-white parent. And she says it just that way. One white parent, one non-white parent. That made me step back like, what's going on? And I looked at the picture again. I said, nope, white parent. And then as I continued reading, I said, nope, nope, nope. You are able to function as a white person. This sounds like a white person. It's got the same points. Get back to the, uh, she mentions Charles Murray. Oh, let me give my correction. Tiger Woods from 2009. He won 17 tournaments. One major. I think I said majors. He won one major tournament, 17 tournaments during that time period. Uh, he has not won a tournament at all since 2019. I don't think he's being followed up by a whole bunch of black people unless I missed it. Anyway, um, she mentions Charles Murray in the text. Uh, that name should be familiar. Um, folks who studied racism, white supremacy, he's one of the co-authors of The Bell Curve. That's one of those by omission because she doesn't include. He wrote a bestseller. People still talk about this book. Um, it's been long enough removed and you have college students that are young enough they might not immediately know oh Charles Murray he wrote the bell curve but if she had said it I suspect they are especially college students instead of them, oh yeah the niggers are dumb okay I got it got it got it she just says Charles Murray controversial and keeps going like that sort of omission and then she touches on later talking about how everybody thinks that white people are super duper smart and black people are ignorant well why is that the bell curve, that would have been a great moment to even just get a sentence. That sort of omission, that's the type of act I expect from a white person practicing racism, where you're leaving out details and then doing all this nonsense, emphasizing alleged white people 
who oppose racism. Come on, stop. Yeah, stop. Stop it. Uh, let's see. She she also, I'm going to give one, she does a lot of the white people are ignorant. She does a lot of quoting dead black people to Dubois and James Baldwin. Uh, there's a lot of that as well, but a lot of the white people are ignorant and unconscious about racism. All of that is nonsense and all of that is the same thing that most, well, that's the same way that most white people talk about. That's the way that they're comfortable. White privilege, uh, they don't think they're ignorant. They uh, are just have unconscious bias. She quotes Michael uh, Gladwell, implicit bias. That is a very common way of thinking uh, about this issue. I submit it is not accurate at all. She writes, this is on page 17 in the introduction. Uh, emphasis on the historical variability of political identity. Linda, I'm give the full sentence. The fact that this history has been largely lost is no coincidence. They suggest but an element of the orchestration of whiteness itself as an identity that is meant to organize society, explain history and trump class in an analysis compatible with Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Moose emphasis on the historical variability of political identity. Linball and Redeker, Marcus Redeker, guest on the program. He wrote The Slave Ship. Dr. Welsing said, read Marcus Redeker, The Slave Ship. I did. Uh, showed that race-based groups and hierarchies trumped class less than we often suppose. I'm going to read that again. Linball and Redeker show that race-based groups and hierarchies trump class less than we often suppose. I do not think that that is true in the system of racism white supremacy if you are classified as white that has so much power all around the world in fact I had the data it's not just what I think and I had the data uh, to come back like recent data that report from this summer it got updated 2023 you know the one part that they did not update infant and maternal health in black families at the top of the income distribution is markedly worse than that of white families at the bottom of the income distribution. That's from Maternal and Infant Health Equality. That's the name of the report. It was published just earlier this summer and revised this month. They didn't change that sentence at all. That's what I mean. Like, I do not believe that is true. Let's see the report. And even, hey, that's that's old. This is more recent. And I've seen data for Nelia Randall dying while black gave similar information with regards to health expectancies for black people. Even the black people that are well off, they are not well off health wise than even poor white people because of white supremacy racism. But that sort of conflation and that sort of thing, I said, it's the same thing is in whiteout suggesting that poor white people, man, they got it bad. They're struggling. Even the lowest of the low white people still got. She said her lowest of the low mom, low count, no white people with no money and everything working close hand with niggers and everything. Still got that scholarship to FSU. That's not even like I, you know, had to uh, hook up with a rich white man or whatever else, prostitute myself out. I got to go to school and get me a degree. Come on. Come on. That's why I said, like, don't be comparing poor white people or any. I don't care if they're gay, disabled, 
transgender or anything else you can come up with. Come on. Uh, let's see. Anything else I need to get in? Uh, excellent questions. I think there were some opportunities where she asked the question. Listeners didn't even answer a question. They just continued with their question. Super efficient. No prompts needed. Everybody was phenomenal, even though we had lots of uh, callers. But we were able to get to lots of people's questions because everyone was so efficient, codified. Bravo. Excellent job. Uh, let's see. I The caller, in fact, who asked about, I thought, now you can correct us all. I thought the question was, who do you think has more power in the system of white supremacy and she answered with who was more informed now maybe you maybe I didn't hear it correctly because I was like wait a minute because I was thinking did she not answer the question I was like now that's interesting that she pivoted to this and gave us what we always hear from everybody really but that non-white people are more informed but I was like I didn't think that was the question and then the caller said that I was like oh okay I didn't think that was the question but yeah well maybe we'll we can we can get that and then she said she is white presenting Man, the list it just keeps it which I said before vehemently Neely Fuller Jr. the classifications are white supremacist white non-white victims guaranteed qualified for me it's two I don't really care what any of you all think, even though I'm very aware. I guess some people, oh my gosh, that coon, how could he do that? It's supposed to be three. Whatever. You don't have to listen. Deuces. At any rate, white, non-white and or white supremacist, non-white, no other categories we do not need let me go and add a few because we got some of these coons running around here and we got to figure out that and all of that is leading to confusion and we have a really bad problem staying focused on the problem being individuals classified as white we love it love it i want to just take five minutes to get on the boule I just want to take five minutes to get on the black people who were born in Africa. I just want to take 30 seconds to get on the black people who were born in the Caribbean. I just want to take two days to get on Al Sharpton. I need one weekend just to talk about the Obamas. And on and on and on. The problem is not non-white people. I think somebody even asked, like, is all this conflict between victims? Is that because of the system of white supremacy racism? Hey. It could be. It certainly seems to be. White people certainly do a lot of encouraging us to be in conflict with each other, just like they encourage a lot of these. Look at this. Look at this. So we got borderline white, white presenting, honorary white, white adjacent probationary white now you might have folks who come up we got one two three four five you might have five different people for all of these different categories none of them classified as white 
you could have five different people in all these categories and they're all classified as white race soldiers at the end of the day are you classified as white that's not one of them oh man what's your truth brother Gus no man no man they got official forms in most parts of the world now, that is true they don't always have that on the driver's license and what have you but that is very common man they got forms and all that you got to check boxes and all that you cannot be ignorant about your racial classification if you're white are you white period not all this so well I'm white adjacent probationary I got my card for three days what what particularly I had man y'all took some of my questions too like I had the affirmative action one had to cross that off do you practice racism had to cross that off uh, somebody asked that man they said do you practice racism well hmm, it's, it's possible <laughs> nah all of that goes in the trash suspected racist that's the term you use you have someone I think this person could be accepted as white suspected racist period Ain't nothing else. I don't think I called her. I said it repeatedly. Suspected racist. Logical? Yep. That's what's going to be in this description. In fact, that was already in the description because I thought she was white when I saw her picture. I thought she was white when I read the book. And I thought she was white the whole time that we talked on the program. I had suspected racist in there from the beginning. No change needed. I don't need any of those other terms. White present. I might put it in quotes just that she did say that, but buddy, every day, all day, suspected racist trumps all of those. That's the only one you need if you think, am I talking to someone that's white? I think they could be suspected racist. If you got one that's more logical, more accurate, let's hear it. Last thing before I get you guys, I was a little disgruntled for many reasons. I'm a victim, but I was a little disgruntled. Uh, both, I don't like reading books that I feel like are deliberately uh, dishonest, cased. Isabel Wilkerson, worst book ever, Alice Siebold, cased, second worst book ever, Alice Siebold, lucky, worst book ever. I don't like reading Sue Klebold. I don't like reading books that I think are deliberately dishonest. And this book felt deliberately dishonest. Written by a suspected racist. So what else is new? Uh, but I was disgruntled at the beginning of the program. Man, oh man, because she was doing all that long talking and everything. And I had to kind of make sure I had to tell myself that all day long. Like, man, you cannot come in there. You're already worthless Negro from Virginia. You cannot be huffing and puffing and getting rowdy just because you think she wrote this old lame dishonest book that you think is super non-constructive get it together think I did a better job as we kind of mosey through the broadcast folks who are with us if you have a hand up commentary to share line should be open did you have commentary uh, before we wrap all up hello can you hear Victim in New Jersey.
No, that's not me, Gus. But I, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go after the uh, call. Oh, right on. Thank you kindly. Was that 2262? My bad. 2262. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, just to uh, answer your question, my uh, question to her was, who do you, who do you think has more po- uh, power, knowledge, and understanding? of the system or racism, white supremacy. But that's all I wanted to add. I added all three of those, those things up. That was it. Okay. She did the not, did she, she didn't answer the power part. I guess I heard the power part. I didn't hear the knowledge uh, and understanding part of it. She, she answered that part and she gave us the, yeah, yeah. Uh, but she didn't say anything. Did she say the power part? Who has more power? No, sir. You're correct. You know that she totally ignored the uh, power. Um, she went right to the understanding. Yeah, see now that they, man, they tell me knowledge is power. I don't know how you get all this power and then don't have no knowledge or information about how all of this got put together, and then you keep the people that are subject to you illiterate in large chunks of the known. You like, come on, man, come on, come on, come on. Uh, was that was that it? Uh, two two six two. Yes, sir. Got it. Victim in New Jersey. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Gus. Yes. Um. You know, it's it, uh, you know, when I was uh, more confused, you know, with my beautiful education, um, <laughs> you know, and, it, and I, you know, often had a bunch of encyclopedias. And that may be very, very um, uh, knowledgeable about geography. So, you know, when they start talking about the West and Middle East, and, you know, a lot of that could just be very confusion, confusing. But, you know, just, just say white people, not white. You know, but, that's, but when people say West, you know, that's what you're, you're saying. But, again, you know, that's, you know, when they use terms like that, uh, when we're talking about race and racism and white supremacy, you know, they, they, they start to, you know, confuse people. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to get around to that granddad because it seems like um, your guests, white guests, uh, they always, when asked about, you know, have they heard any racist jokes or are their parents white, you know, it always goes to the patriarchy. That, that white father, that white granddad. So my question would have been, you know, when your grandfather was making uh, all these, uh, well, you know, the racist remarks, was there any rebuttals? Did, did, your, did your grandmother ever um, intervene and correct this great, this racist granddad? Like, you know, so all the racism is just thrown on old white granddad. And also, she says that this granddad of hers accepted um, her father, you know, because, you know, he, he admired his education. I'm like, okay. That, I mean, if that's all it would have took for racist man, racist woman, racist child to, um, you know, not to be less racist, to have a appreciation for education, Martin Luther King Jr. graduated high school, I mean college, as a teenager. So I'm pretty sure he didn't, he didn't, that didn't make him uh, cozy up 
uh, to Martin Luther King Jr. You know, um, I, had, I had some other questions that I was going to get around and ask. Just give me one second. I wanted to ask her, oh, uh, her Jewish uh, husband. So, you know, if he entered the room, you know, wasn't wearing a yarmulke, you know, didn't have the Star David um, uh, gold chain on his neck, you know, didn't let anyone know that he, you know, just came from, from the synagogue on Saturday, would they know he was Jewish? And she also said, uh, she said, what did she say? Oh, man, she said, oh, leftist. I forgot what she said. It gets, oh, it gets, she says that when she was describing um, the terrorism that Jewish people um, experience, she says it gets better and then it's pushed back. So I'm I'm assuming I don't want to put words in her mouth where there's progress and then somehow there isn't any more progress for whatever reason as it relates to um, the discrimination or um, acts of racism that Jewish people experience. So I would want to know what like what does that mean? But there is no evidence that it's it's got better and then it gets pushed back for people classified as Jewish, you know, I mean, you know, they have Jewish people have their own state. Um, you know, arguably Israel is a very powerful nation class of, you know, I mean, people who classify themselves as Jewish and, you know, Jewish people are, are, are doing well, you know? So I, I just wanted to her to, you know, to, to emphasize what does she mean by that. <clears throat> Much obliged, victim in New Jersey. I can't emphasize enough uh, the classifications white, non white, Jewish is not a racial classification. In fact, she did the slick white move when I said that. She said, Well, most people don't think of Ju- uh, Judaism as a, in the typical sense of religion. I didn't even say religion. I said Jewish is not a racial classification. Even that sort of phrasing that Jewish people are doing okay, there are lots of individuals who are not white who are so-called Jewish. They are not okay. They are victims of white supremacy. We've done programs about them. They have lots of footage of them being mistreated. They are classified as so-called Jewish. Uh, that's why I say that that is not a classification. So when Benjamin Netanyahu, he walks in the room, that's a non-white person? Really? Really? The people in this part of the world that they're talking about, so-called Israel, who are in charge and powerful and doing all right, get invited to come here and talk to Congress, I think these people are classified as white. White people argue and bicker amongst themselves about that all the time. That is amongst them can cause a lot of confusion amongst up. Are you classified as white? That she even said her now, I mean that's staggering. She said, now my husband, if you ask him, he was just, oh yeah, I'm white. She said, Oh yeah, I like to complicate that that word. That's what I would expect from someone who is practicing racism. What's complicated? He said he's white. What's the complication? 
white people have a hierarchy amongst themselves. Some white people are more powerful than others. White people squabble and bicker about whom is classified as white. All of that, psh, at the end of the day, do a substantial number of people accept him as white? It seems the answer is yes. Moving forward. I don't know what's complicated about that, but that's what racists like to do. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in, did you? Oh, wait a minute on the grandfather. Wait a minute. Let me give you a quick one on that. So this is on page 31. My grandfather's explosive mockery of dark skinned faces on television, like bombs on television, could not but have been had a disquieting effect on both of us, her darker sister, Vicky and I, her darker sister, later gingerly talked about the disparate treatment we had experienced. My mother confided the difficulty she had in moving in with her parents after she left Panama and separated from my father precisely because she could see their, meaning both grandparents, obvious favoritism for me and knew its racial basis. She was desperate to move us out of there. My sister was already having enough of a challenge adjusting to life in the U.S. after our preemptory departure from Panama. It wasn't just that she looked more like my father, non-white. It was that she was four years older, school age, and spoke only Spanish. Ay, caramba. Mm, muy mal. Oh. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, do you have commentary? Can heard. Heard both of you. Let's get our caller. Oh six six six. We'll do you first, and then other caller. Yes. Um. Thank you, Gus. Um. To answer your initial question about if if uh, Dr. Alcott was a white woman, I, she definitely looks like she's classified to, as white to me. Uh, she definitely looks like average middle-aged white woman as the caller stated um i said that she didn't answer my question i asked if she was if um from her experience being a white person uh, does she think that a majority of white people want to live work and learn with and or around black people um it was again very deceptive how she um included that study in her response that, you know, 50% of black, of white people in this, in this study agree with black people in terms of, you know, uh, of, you know, black people's views on uh, integration and, you know, uh, you know, that in, in that context. So, um, Thank you for that, that report and study. Could you uh, um, refresh me uh, what that study was that that said that you know uh, school segregation is worse now is worse now than it was in the 1950s? Uh, I reckon. Uh, give me a moment. It's in uh, Dr. Hextrom's uh, book, uh, Special Admission. Uh, she we talked about this section specifically uh, on the program. Uh, I read the exact passage from the book. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, it's on page. I mean, I could. The way I was going to do it is because I had multiple, like all those people that we talked to and all the rest of it. Like, you can rewind and hear that one. I had multiple of those to share since we were talking specifically about living around. Uh, black people. The other one I have, this is from Forbes 
uh, magazine. Uh, I think this was important because I read this one when Dr. Franz was on the program. Home ownership keeps blacks poorer than whites. This is from 2012. Uh, Dorothy Brown, she's now a white professor at uh, Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, she writes specifically. Here we go. A 2007 study by George Washington University sociology professor Gregory D. Squires comments on why most whites avoid racially diverse neighborhoods. Evidence indicates that is it is the presence of blacks and not just neighborhood conditions often associated with blacks, e.g. bad schools, high crime that accounts for white aversion to such areas. In one survey, whites reported that they would be unlikely to purchase a home that met their requirements in terms of price, number of rooms, and other housing characteristics in a neighborhood with good schools and low crime rates if there was a substantial representation of African Americans. I remember this report specifically because Professor Brown was a guest on the now defunct Melissa Harris Perry program, Cowbell, and they talked about this. They read, I think they even read this paragraph. And Melissa Harris Perry looked at her and said, Dang, Professor Brown, it almost sounds like you're saying that white people just don't want to live around black people, period. And she said, Yep. It wasn't any pussyfooting yeah. and trying to water it down, metaphor it. No, no, no. And you miss it. Yep. And they said, yeah. oh, man, that's so messed up. Yeah. And this would have had to have been like 2000, around the same time period. So 2012, 2013. That's why I said, like, dang, you're a college professor and you didn't know that because that study that I did read before that I could have read again was about the Brown v. Board of Education decision. That's old. Like, you can get the one that I read that's from 2020, but you can go back and get that from like 2013 because they did a bunch of those calling attention to this fact at the 60 year anniversary if you want to call it that in 2000 uh, yeah in 2014 it's tons of them you can time search it on a search engine and just put in the year for 2014 it'll be bunches that come up that 60 years later it's worse they democracy now my bff amy goodman can get two mentions she did a whole segment on this and i think they had nicole hannah jones cowbell again Ugh. Nicole Hannah-Jones was on and they talked about this in great detail almost a decade ago. That's what I mean. Like, don't be coming talking goofy opinion poll. Like, at the end of the day, when you look at what white people do, dedication, all areas of people activity. Were there other folks who had commentary? Have we heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, agreed, Mr. Gus. Uh, greetings to all the callers. Uh, I just, yeah, I was going to answer the question too. Uh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, she definitely, definitely would consider her to be a, a white woman. Um, I feel like, uh, man, I could have asked her a lot of questions. Um, the one question that I did ask her, she kind of like started when I asked her about the anti racist, like she led me into that question. But, uh, I wanted to ask her when you was talking about her using the word we, um, she talked about uh, when the female caller asked her about black philosophers and stuff like that. How many are there any black philosophers? She was saying that uh, 
like she said, uh, well, we have a community of black philosophers. So I was wondering, did she classify herself as a black philosopher? I was wondering. I was just wondering that because she used the word we in that in that instance. Um, and also, she was talking about um, another thing with her. Um, and these, I don't, I want to. I don't know if I'm going to call them anti-racist or whatever she considers herself. But she uses. They use a lot of use all these different terms like anti-racist. Um, uh, she was talking about the dominant left. Um, she was saying that was who she wrote the book for. Um, I wanted to ask her, like, I mean, she said that's who she wrote the book for. I was wondering, did she think they were ignorant about racism? Um, I didn't think that she answered my question really when I asked her about uh, what do white people talk about? I mean, why did why don't they want to talk about whiteness? She started giving me like she was saying, I guess this about science, that that was why some scientific reason why they didn't want to explain whiteness or whatever. I thought that was interesting, but um, I wanted to also ask her um, about, uh, I believe her name is, uh, is Nimricarta Nikki Haley. <laughs> I wanted to ask her, uh, does she consider her to be white presenting? Uh, that's all I had. Thank Fascinating. Uh, are there other folks who had commentary they wanted to share? Uh, yes, can I be heard? 9029, yes, sir. Yes, it was um, It was kind of clear from the beginning, from the first couple of questions you asked her, actually the first two, that it just, it just seemed like she was definitely practicing racist white supremacy. It's, and the answers, I mean, to be very clear-cut with you, man, the answers were just so roundabout and... I mean, she just kept on going on and on about it and elaborating, but never really getting to the point and sometimes never really answering the question directly, you know. And I asked one question specifically in regards to, do you think the correlation between, you know, the so-called Hispanic community and Spanish and all these other difficult, different racial classifications or whatever, do you think that causes confusion there and then did you think there's some same correlation when it comes to being white? And she just went on on a spiel. And it just was very evident that she's been practicing racism, white supremacy for some time. She's happy in a position. She's happy where she is. I mean, I could be, you know, I could be wrong, but it definitely sounds like she has been utilizing that power that she has for an extended period of time. I wonder about her relationship with her sister. That's what I wonder about. I wonder how that is. You know, I was very curious to see if somebody could speak about that or ask that question. But, you know, that was one of the things that left me um, pondering because that often usually causes conflict. You know, I'll mute my line. That would have been a great question just to get a little bit more. De- That's why I started on that, because I thought that was important. Um as opposed to starting off with, you know, what do you mean armies of anti-racists and that sort of thing? Um, but yeah, that would have been great to know about their, <clears throat> the interaction between those two, especially since she married a white man too. Like, ee. Mm. 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 Uh, other folks uh, with, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I guess what is, so April 23rd, 2014, Democracy Now!, Jim Crow in the classroom, Jim Crow. It's 2014, white supremacy in the classroom. New report finds segregation lives on in U.S. schools. 
I'm just going. I'm not leading the whole thing. You got the whole transcript. You can listen. Uh, the guest, Nicole Hannah-Jones, as stated, as the U.S. Supreme Court upholds a ban on affirmative action in Michigan and the country. Affirmative most benefiting white women for sure uh, and the country marks 60 years since the landmark decision of brown v board of education we look at how segregation is still pervasive in u.s public schools an explosive her word again new report in pro pro publica on school integration never fully occurred and in recent decades may have even been reversed and that's what i said there were lots of the if you pay attention to the news like that moron says there were lots of these reports at that time period that's why i say like man you're a college professor you didn't see this you write about racism you talk about racism you don't watch democracy now i mean damn you talk about lefty progressive white people like gee whiz amy flipping goodman you don't watch democracy now nicole hannah she writes in the new york times all the time you don't read ProPublica that's supposed to be one of the you know hey I'm a progressive left leaning army of anti-racist white people I read and listen to ProPublica nah. uh, other folks they have commentary they want to get in hey Gus she, uh, just to add she was on Democracy Now so she was oh, that's right. the left <laughs> She should have been watching that day to hear Nicole Anna Jones. She could have put that in the uh, report. Talking, yeah, suspected racist Dr. Alcoff. Were there other folks who had commentary they wanted to get in? Uh, yes. Uh, she uh, was stating that uh, she's a uh, non-white person, but... Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, even white people who are the experts on the subject, uh, I would not believe that they would classify her as not being anything other than a white female. And as I mentioned, a middle-aged white female. That's what she. I wasn't trying to be rude by stating that. I was just mentioning what was on on my mind at the time, as far as a, a description of someone wanted to ask uh, for it. Uh, Even if she was a non-white person, uh, by the damage, I think, that that is done by having sex with white people, uh, it did have a negative reflect on her, on her thinking, on her expressions and thoughts on the subject of racism, uh, you can hear it in the program. Uh, if you state one uh, faction of racism, white supremacy, she would give some sort of uh, watering down type of effect or state basically that non-white people, are, uh, they're just not as much as they are, but they, it is something that's, non-white people do or the similar to racism, white supremacy, that sort of thing, all through the program. That's what you was hearing. Uh, and, uh, so that, that was my, that was my, uh, thoughts during the whole course of, uh, but it's, it's good. It's good for teaching, uh, others, other non-white people about, uh, the different type of behaviors of racism, white supremacy. It's a, it's, it's be a good uh, uh, 
uh, tape to uh, play to others about about uh, her particular uh, behavior on the program. And that's it. Almost 2025. They don't have tape anymore. Uh, the (laughs) (laughs) anti-black racism. She said anti-Asian racism. She said black people participate in anti-black racism, Asian people. And that's the sort of thing where I was like, Oh yeah. Talking to a racist suspect. That's exactly what I would expect from someone classified as white. Like get the attention off of me. Like let's talk about, yeah, that old Al Sharpton and these other non-white people and yeah they got the internalized racial oppression and woo 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 and all that wait 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 the problem is white people we should use terms that center all of this chaos and injustice on you all especially since you all consistently do the same thing. Move it over and focus on other people. And oh, don't focus on me. Don't talk about me. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Right there. And even all that nonsense with the use of that term anti-racist is an act of racism. In a system of racism, white supremacy, no white person should be identifying themselves or anybody as anti-racist. Mr. Fuller doesn't even say that he's a counter-racist most of the time. He says attempted. I've even heard him explain it in detail. Hey, nobody can, you know, logically say that. Attempted. That's the best you can say. Logical. <laughs> Racist. That's the best thing you can do. You want to be helpful. Don't be going around, especially if you're not even doing like you're not, you know, making compensatory, fulfilling compensatory investment requests, writing accurate, constructive information to help non-white people better understand the system. Racist racist suspect and that's it we don't need no other labels i'm trying what do we we got uh i'm a i'm a struggling racist recovering racist anti-racist white but they got oh my god white privilege racist if you gotta go the easy route suspected racist that's all we need we don't need anything else we don't need people thinking that you are some well me oh that's the one i forgot well-meaning white person they got oh my god Oh, they will just pile them up on you. Did we miss anybody? We got everybody. Hey, Gus, um, can I ask something before we close? Um, it was something else I wanted to say to her when she brought up the golf and she, you know, um, talked about, uh, as far as like black people taking over golf, if I'm not mistaken. And then she brought up Tiger Woods. I'm like, you know, I I deliver to golf clubs in the tri-state area, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut. Gus, there's nothing but white people on these golf courses. There is no evidence of black people taking over anything. And these are affluent, you know what I mean, people with money, golf courses. The brownest the brownest person I see or darkest person I see in the golf course is in the kitchen. And these people might be classified as Hispanic, Latino, Mexican, Salvadorian, etc. So she's knowledgeable. She's knowledgeable. She's aware of this. 
So yeah, I, I will I will put her in the category. I would say that she's definitely somebody who practices racism. Even just with that alone. Mm. No niggers at the golf club, even in the post tiger renaissance. Now she she did say that, you know, hey, it's not quite as white as it was a hundred years ago that, you know, you might find a occasional, you know, so-called Asian person or something else, or maybe Tiger Woods cousin or somebody stumbled in. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Dr. Kirsten Hextrom, in addition to that passage on Brown v. Board of Education, uh, she taught like, hey, go around to the Negro high schools, especially the ones that are hyper segregated, as they say, like 98% Negros. How many of them have a golf team? That right there. Hey, you haven't even been exposed. You got to wait until you're 30, 40, 45 to start playing. Then where are you going to play? As we said, the expense of it all. And that's most sports. As she talked about in her book that's why I said like for real where are you looking at where white people and even even that like you'd have to give me some quotes where white people are saying hey we feel oh, they got their clubs they're teeing it up man they're practicing they were out looking at golf co- like what who when where Rental James what are you talking about what are you, get, get out of here Michael Jordan what are you talking about get out of here get out of here they made Michael Jordan build his own golf course they treated him so bad man Anyway, uh, Columbine, do it up uh, tomorrow. Can't she mention Michael Moore in the book? If we had not done this study session, I maybe wouldn't have felt some type of way about that. But, oh, man, Michael Moore did that whole movie. We didn't hear Isaiah Scholl's name, much less what happened to him. Wrapping it all up tomorrow. Sue Klebold, A Mother's Reckoning, Catherine Massey Book Club. Cannot wait. Uh, we have Friday neutralizing workplace racism, Saturday compensatory call in much obliged for everyone's participation. Hopefully constructive investment of your Wednesday evening sobriety would be best. We need high functioning brain computers to sift through all this chaos and confusion, sometimes outright deception. No sexual intercourse with white I think we've said that consistently for some years. I remember we had people with the audacity to call into the program and say, oh my gosh, the cows, you encourage non-white people to have sex with white people to solve this problem. I have no idea what you're talking about. We've stated pretty explicitly for a long time, practically day one, no sexual intercourse between white people and non-white people maximum act of racist aggression fuller explain that in the archives excellent observation man even see how it even if on the off chance this is a non-white person this is what happens you have a white parent white family member racist family members as she stated it does have an enormous impact on your brain computer how could it not No name calling. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. 
I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.